Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Tangled. I could get used to a view like this. Yep, I'm used to it. Guys, I want a castle. Ah, the kingdom. It is beautiful. Clapping, dancing, general merrymaking. Not a care in the world. At least for most folks. See that handsome fellow running for his life? That is me. They just can't get my nose right. And that tower? Well, in that tower, there lived a girl who was just waiting for her life to begin. We really hit it off. How you doing? Gentleman that I am, I decided to help her. I'm prepared to offer you a deal. She could not resist me. I didn't want to have to do this, but you leave me no choice. Here comes the smolder. This is kind of an off day for me. This doesn't normally happen. Welcome to one of our very favorite Disney films. This kind of contemporary revision of their story, animation, direction, and character beats is why we could only talk about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves for a little while. It's like we've been waiting to talk about the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but we kind of had to start off talking about the doorstep. With us once again, now that all of the animation historians have left in disgust, <laughs> is Daniel Floyd. Hello. Hello. And joining us for a guest spot is Maureen Foley. Hello. Okay, a little bit of a preamble here first. To put this in historical context, the year was 2010, 15 years after Toy Story when Pixar presented the first wildly successful and viable way forward for a rival form of animation that Disney were not specialised in. 11 years after the 90s renaissance came to a close with Tarzan. A decade of Disney being uncertain of which direction to move in. Nine years after Shrek made megabucks by being what classic Disney was not. Irreverent, rude, and absolutely 2001. Filled with pop culture references, whether they made sense or not. A soundtrack full of well-known contemporary of the day, absolutely smash mouth pop songs. <laughs> and covers of beloved <laughs> tunes sung by artists the record labels wanted to push who you've never heard of now. Butterfly Butcher, positioning its derision of the Disney culture and history as progressive and, most of all, presented with 3D computer animation. Eight years after Disney invested $140 million into the technically marvellous $109 million 2D flop that was Treasure Planet. Six years after 3D Shark Tale made more than three times the box office of 2D Home on the Range, despite costing $35 million less. Five, they both suck. Five years <laughs> after Chicken Little became what Disney wanted to do from now on. <laughs> Four years since Warner Brothers' Happy Feet won the Oscar, as well as the BAFTA for Best Animated Picture, now a vaguely contested prize still usually won by Pixar. Three years after Meet the Robinsons charmed very few. Two years since Bolt had people wondering what Disney even was anymore. One year after The Princess and the Frog delivered to the world what was going to be the first of a new renaissance of 2D cell animation. 
and 2010 was the same year as the release of Toy Story 3, the 11th Pixar feature, all of which, up to that point, had been successful and critically acclaimed, and arguably Toy Story 3 was their best and best received yet. Things had changed forever. Disney needed to do something. They had tried doing something drastic. They had tried silly. They had tried not Disney. They had tried not funny. They had tried wacky. They had tried doing what they used to do best. Now they had to evolve for a world that wanted something new, yet familiar. Traditional, yet cutting edge. Tangled was at one point intended to be a 2D animated film. In fact, development began with Glenn Keane all the way back the year after Toy Story in 1996. This means it was in some form of production or other all the way up the ladder that I just read out, even if that production was hiatus. As of 2003, Rapunzel Unbraided was going to be a Shrek-like romp. A thoroughly reactive Shrek-like romp. At one point, it was going to be set in San Francisco. But Glenn Keane knew that they could do better, that they could do it earnestly, that they didn't have to fall to cynicism. And when Ed Catmull and John Lasseter of Pixar were placed in charge of the studio in 2006, they had Glenn fire this one back up again. And the decision was made to invest heavily in a new form of 3D animation. So, there's a reason we get Dan on all these shows. <laughs> um, I'm going to defer to your uh, knowledge on this one. How much can you tell us about what they were aiming for with Tangled's look? The look of ta- like, uh, by the way, everything you just said, it is, it is bonkers. <laughs> like <laughs> how long this film was in production. And it's also ridiculous how, I guess it's not ridiculous at this point. It's been a trend the closer we get to modern day, but just how much of the production of this feels like it's still under Disney lock and key. Mm. It just still bothers the heck out of me. Yeah, because the, uh, the uh, extras on the Blu-ray are sparse. Mm, we had to go yeah. to YouTube to find anything meaty. It's mm. pretty ridiculous. Like, this is maybe the most expensive animated film of all time. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't get that trophy without having some wild stories behind the scenes. And they're <laughs> just clearly trying to not let very many of them get out. And it makes me so mad. But yeah, so the look that they were going for, like originally when when Glenn Keane, that uh, all-star Disney Renaissance animator who I never shut up about, had the idea for this Rapunzel movie in 96, he was uh, like obviously envisioning another hand-drawn 2d production because that's his wheelhouse and that's what like disney's pivot to 3d was still pretty far off when he first came up with it when he was given the directive that like okay this has to be a shrek style fairy tale subversion and it has to be 3d he had to figure out what to do with that and so he ended up gathering together a bunch of disney artists and animators from both the 2d and 3d sides of the fence and he apparently held this really big internal seminar called the best of both worlds in which they all discussed the strengths and the weaknesses of hand-drawn versus cg and i i really wish i could have been a fly on that wall because i thought that was fascinating but and eventually it was decided that all right they were going to do it in 3d but they were going to do their darndest to imitate the to imitate the traditional 2d animation aesthetic Mm. which is a really daunting thought because like that had never been done in 3d to this point the, the fact that this is the first true I, I think true disney film in 3d is 
really impressive. Like, it's not knocking off Pixar's look. It's not knocking off DreamWorks' look. It is actually trying to reproduce the look of a Disney film to a, to an extent. Like, clearly still, it's not, like, trying to look like 2D, but it's capturing the look and feel of 2D. So with, like, their rendering style, they are, rather than going for photorealism, which a lot of, like, uh, a lot of 3D films kind of were to a certain extent in their rendering style, they were going for something closer to a oil painting, which mm. is a great idea because, like, it just makes these these environments and the, the world these characters inhabit just looks so like it creates a sense of a fantasy fantastical world in space which so many like we've talked so many times uh, in these podcasts about the different styles of painting that different backgrounds would be go- aiming for in each of these films and g- going for a stylistic look again really makes this feel like kind of an old disney film would and with the animation especially and this is probably the part that i'm going to babble most about just the production part of this because it fascinates me so much so i'm sorry in advance why i open up the floor you you asked for this there is a lot of stuff that 3d is not good at naturally that that are just way easier to do in hand-drawn animation and back in the early 2000s that list was a lot longer but from everything i've heard and read it sounds to me like the reason this film looks as good as it does in the animation and the rendering and everything it sounds like because Keen was not willing to take no for an answer. Like, just as, as an example, when you're animating a character in 3D, it is so easy to kind of just accept the results that your character rig gives you when you're posing the character. It's so mm-hmm. like you, you try to pose them and you, you look at how the limbs and the joints bend and the shapes they make when you like create that pose and you just kind of think to yourself, yeah, it looks pretty good. That's probably how it should look. But Keen would look at that same pose and say, like, no, 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 this is how Rapunzel's torso should look when you twist the shoulders this way. Like, if we were hand-drawing it, that this is how we would be making that shape, and there, there should be this nice, clean curve down the leg like this, and, and if the character rig can't do that, then send it back, change the rig till it does. And I just keep hearing these stories about animation dailies with Glenn Keane on this film and how every single day Keane would be framing through the animator's shots and drawing over them with a Cintiq, just pushing the poses a little more and refining the silhouettes and basically just drawing it at like how each pose would look if he were still doing this by hand. And sometimes I'm told he was practically reanimating some of these shots there on the spot and it's really hard to get that 2D look in 3D. It would have been really challenging to animate these CG characters in a way that to the camera, they do have that old 2D Disney appeal. Like the modeling and rigging requirements just to technically make it possible for the animators to do that would have been daunting. And Keen Keen described it as being hard to find what he calls bridge people who really understand both computer and hand-drawn animation and how to translate between the two. But the results in this are amazing. Prior to this, I did not think it was possible to animate 3D characters looking like this and looking this appealing in a Disney way. This came out soon after I had started up at Pixar Canada, and I was learning a whole lot about animation, but I was like floored by how the character animation looked in this. And I still am. It still is amazing to look at. And ever since this point, Disney 3D character animation has looked amazing. I get the sense from the stories I hear from like people who've worked on it and from the few behind the scenes bits I can find that this production was almost like a 
decade-long mentorship of Disney 3D animation from Keen, kind of passing the torch the way the original Nine Old Men had to him and his generation, mm-hmm. which makes... This is such a big pivot point in 3D animation just kind of as an art form, not just for Disney alone. And like, I don't, I, for that reason alone, I think this movie is so, so very cool. Well, maybe that's what the uh, the solution was then. If you found it so difficult to find bridge people, he had to train bridge people. And that's how long mm-hmm. it took to get them from you know, the one set of skills to the other, whichever direction they were going in. Um, but I think you're right about the aesthetic and how it, it carries on that tradition of the, the classic Disney look um, and translating that into 3D, which can't have been easy. And I think it does it with the story as well. It goes beyond just how it looks. It's the it's the characterization. It's the, the fact that it's taken from a, a fairy tale, Um all of which combines to make it feel totally Disney, even though it's got this very new look that they have attempted before, but certainly not perfected. I agree. And it's worth mentioning that like Disney does still have some of the old Renaissance animators on staff, like possibly just in a, this sort of mentoring role. Like I think Mark Henn, uh, one of the old Renaissance animators is still there. And, uh, if he's not directly supervising animation on a film, like I think he's still just there for the animators to be able to kind of talk to and get like thoughts and advice from and just from the sound of things anyway, mm-hmm. which is a great idea. That's a good idea on their part. That is a good idea. I mean, they, they carry the legacy for this. Um, <laughs> and if anybody's going to preserve it, then it's going to be them. I don't know if you. I don't know how much YouTube digging you've done. You. It feels like you really have to dig with this movie. But there are some clips out there of a progression of certain shots from start to finish, where you can you can see the animators first pass, and uh, it, it looks really good. Like that's solid animate, like better than what I could do. It looks great. Then you see Glenn's drawover of that shot, and it is incredible the amount of additional appeal he rings out of those movements. And then you see the animators' final version, and it's just like, yeah, that looks twice as good now. That's amazing. There's this really long, I think it was in a, like an hour long talk that a bunch, a few of the uh, leads gave at, I don't know if it was at an art school or what, just before Tangled came out that uh, you can see some of these progress shots and they talk about some of the like hair technology and their approach to designing the world. And it's, it's really cool. I can see how the hair technology would have been pretty huge for this. That hair sounded like a a nightmare. Department just for the hair. Okay, everybody, take a strand. (laughs) That hair sounded terrifying to animate. So I've watched some um, different videos from different uh, creators on YouTube about certain types of animation and Pixar and uh, Disney, and they one of the things that they talked about with Pixar, which I know is not related, but it is, is that with each Pixar movie, there's a thing that they're trying that's new, and they always have to, they do a short to test that animation style to that, so that it can use it in the next movie, and they, one of the things they mentioned about the first Incredibles movie was that uh, Violet's hair was so hard to to animate because of the length of it and the fact that yeah. it's so integral into her character and she has it over her face and da 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 and I was like, yeah, her hair is nothing compared to <laughs> Rapunzel's like me. Okay, take that take that theory and then like multiply it by like a million. Mm. So I can imagine you know watching the movie again and and the stylization 
of the characters, I mean that their eyes are always so like ridiculously big, especially for girls. Like their their eyes are like it's, that's not physically possible. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> but it's interesting to watch the the way that they get them to move it, and it is different, like you said, to the two D animation, obviously. But there's still there it's a, it's its own fluidity, so it's not realistic, and yet. It has enough normalcy about it that it feels like it could be real somehow. Like, just slightly, you know, not Uncanny Valley levels of off, but, like, it's there, but it's not there. Yeah. Um, but I had a question that you were you were talking about with the, uh, oh, and I'm going to say the wrong phrase, character model? or the, yeah, yeah. the So if if they make a character model and it doesn't move quite right, do they make multiple character models? Or do they have to keep doing just the one character model and over and over again? Like, because obviously they, there's different poses. There's different, you know, there's a lot of action in this movie. And um, Rapunzel does a lot of, like, acrobatic stuff. Did they have to, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but did they have to have different character models for different scenarios? Or was it one character model that they just tweaked a million times? I would guess more the latter. It's definitely not unheard of for there to be multiple versions of a character's okay. model, even just for like costume changes and stuff like that, <laughs> or like action figures. Or there may be like you maybe can't just with erase it and then put a new clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, but but yeah, like you uh, as a character, like as a technical artist who rigs up these essentially mm-hmm. like virtual uh, puppets for the animators to animate. Mm-hmm. You you want the animator to not be limited by the mm. like the limitations of the armature you've built inside this puppet so they're oh, okay. they, they'll spend a year and a half developing these character models and rigs that they will spend a long time just testing them tweaking them the animators will do some little tests and they'll feel like ah, the nose like when you smile here the pent the crease under the nose kind of shears a little bit in a real in a wrong way it doesn't look right can, can we send that back and then they'll they'll tweak it some more and they'll just do this back and forth for a long time you're and kidding me they, they still never, can't get my nose right ah <laughs> 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 oh, that feels slightly on the nose oh. <laughs> hey, patrick <laughs> <laughs> And sweep till the floor's all clean Polish and wax, do laundry and mop and shine up Sweep again and by then it's like 7.15 And so I'll grade up or maybe two or three I'll add a few new paintings to my gallery I'll play guitar and cook and bake And darts and baking Paper mache A bit of ballet and chess Pottery and ventriloquy Candle making Then I'll stretch Maybe sketch Take a climb Score a dress And I'll reread the books If I have time to spare I'll paint the walls some more I'm sure there's room somewhere And then I'll brush and brush And brush and brush 
How does the animation differ from both classic Disney and its contemporary competitors at the time? Because obviously it's been eight years since then, as at the time of recording here. So uh, how did this differ from what Pixar and um, DreamWorks and I suppose Blue Sky Studios were doing in 2010? And, and how did it differ from, I suppose the closest you can get is The Princess and the Frog, which came out the year before and probably represents the pinnacle of what Disney could do with 2D. It, it is hard to pin down because a lot of it is at this point is subtle style choices like Pixar as a whole tends to have a fairly grounded reasonably naturalistic animation style like give it give or take it depending on the film they try to really stay true to the uh like materials that the, mm-hmm. like the character is wearing that try to stay true to the physicality and weight of the character there. They don't do a lot of very exaggerated like squash and stretch most of the time. There's certain films they certainly do more than others. Uh, DreamWorks tended to do pretty similarly, but they may be a little bit more willing to exaggerate here and there. Uh, up to a certain, like up until probably around this point in 3d animation history, just honestly, a lot of, productions were animating ver- like 3D animated films were using pretty much the same style. Like you'd, you'd occasionally get a really exaggerated thing like Madagascar where the characters are all just super exaggerated all the time stretching like crazy sort of Looney Tunes stuff. But I'm for the most part, most of them stayed pretty close. I'm glad you mentioned the stretching actually because I was going to say the, the the thing that seems to connect most of not all of but most of the dreamworks movies for me is the there's a rubber like quality to their mm, their character mm-hmm. models they seem to be able to bend and twist and stretch and and into all sorts of different uh poses for whatever the comedy of the situation demands a lot of the time and and sometimes that really works i'm not saying that this is across the board a bad thing but it does seem to be fairly uniform with dreamworks 2010 was a very good year for DreamWorks. How to Train Your Dragon came out. That is, yeah. That represents one of the pinnacle films for them. It's a, it's a fantastic first movie. Uh, and also Shrek Forever After, which is the probably the most underrated of the Shreks in terms of it's actually got something going on in it, which is, is, is more dramatic and more significant than any of the previous ones. And uh, I think pretty much everyone seemed to be kind of done with Shrek after that, but it's like they... That one's the one that kind of sticks with me. But uh, like just before that was Monsters vs. Aliens in 2009, a film everyone's forgotten. Uh, <laughs> Madagascar Literally. escaped like, to Africa. Madagascar escaped to Africa in 2008. Uh, but also Kung Fu Panda, another wonderful yes. film. So it's not like DreamWorks weren't producing seriously competitive, like you've got to do better than this, not only on a technical level, but in terms of dramatic punch, which obviously Pixar had been weighing in with for years. Mm. Because uh, the the Disney Renaissance definitely had dramatic punch to them but but pixar had gotten really good at having that third act like laid low moment and uh, mm-hmm. and going th- like, people kind of leaned into it with pixar and that they they all like flocked to the pixar films knowing what they were going to get with disney up until this stage they were kind of well, we're not sure what we're going to get we might get a bolt we might get a chicken little uh, you know it might be a princess <laughs> and the frog that that was all right but 
Yeah, I think with, with the, the Disney's, the one thing that was always consistent is you can stick the kids in front of this. You don't have to watch it over their shoulder. Mm. You know they're not going to get presented with a joke they have to come and ask you about. Well, yeah, or something. but up until like <laughs> ninety, like late nineties, they were uncontested aside from the Bluth Company, mm. and the mm. they didn't have to fight. And now they'd spent ten, fifteen years actually being competitive, and they'd been losing. But the animation entangled, if you watch another contemporary from that year, from DreamWorks, or even Toy Story 3, look at Mm. the fabric entangled, look at the Mm. stonework entangled, the wood grain entangled, the flowers, just the colour saturation, the blueness of the sky, Mm. the luster of the hair. They have put everything into this, and somehow it's not overdone. It's not gaudy. It's magnificent. It's exquisite. It's the way Guillermo del Toro lights Crimson Peak and set dresses and and, and uh, the costumes of Crimson Peak. Only not dark and gothic. This is the beautiful daytime version, the, the, except when Mother Gothel's involved sometimes. <laughs> well, indeed. The light, actually, is the, the thing that really grabbed me this watch through today mm-hmm. because... Yes, everything in this is absolutely beautiful and the, the physicality of everything, it feels like you can touch it. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really shone through, excuse the pun, um, for me was the light because they have so many different lighting scenarios in this to the point that it almost feels deliberate. Mm-hmm. You have, there is, there's dawn, noon, twilight, moonlight, candlelight. You've got Rapunzel hiding in the cave with that slight luminescence around so you can just see what's going on. You've got the underwater part where her hair glows and surrounds them with light. You've got the various (laughs) different situations that the the hair comes to life in. Um, And you see how that spreads out. You've got lantern light, candles. There's so much in this and not a single one of them strikes wrong. Mm. Well, I mean, that is kind of the, like the underlying theme of the whole movie was like seeing the light from the candles and the, yeah. the sun is the symbol of the kingdom. And the yes. world has to feel, I don't want to use the P word perfect because like, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's now, now persona non grata on this podcast. It's worse than interesting to say. It's not perfect, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the world seems fascinating and ripe for exploration because we're seeing it through Rapunzel's eyes. Mm. The moment she steps outside, you you want to explore this place with her. The, the, the forest specifically is wild but inviting. It's, it's Everything has to look wonderful yeah. to her. And the other thing is as well, it's got to be, and this is... this animators have one of the hardest jobs in the world in terms of of creative arts because what they have to make has to look so good that you don't notice it (laughs) it's thankless you know what i mean by that for a lot of crafts yeah yeah Yeah. it's the sound design principle basically Mm -hmm. yeah well the the, the sincerity in this that's another thing that sort of sets the animation in this aside and it's something that a lot of the animation scene had kind of been drifting away from in many ways. And it's the thing that defined so much of Disney animation in the performance was just sincerity. Like a lot of DreamWorks productions for a long time were sort of a sarcastic gag driven. The characters don't really feel like they believe or are super invested in their moment until the few scenes where they feel they're supposed to feel that way. 
that, that was what also the, made this film feel like such a weird standout thing that they actually have characters who will break out into song sincerely, not as a joke, like singing to each other in love. And that had kind of just felt like it had vanished other than even even from Disney for the most part for a while. Mm. It felt like uh, everyone performing was a grown up who had turned up at a kid's party and was like, OK, well, the clown didn't arrive. I guess I'll do my thing to entertain the kids and they don't really want to be here, but they'll be funny, funny for the grown ups. And uh, yeah, that's that that's a Katzenberg sensibility. If I want to appeal to the the uh, uh, the, the teenager who doesn't give a toss. No. Oh, is that where he's up to now? Because it started with the five-year-old boy that won't sit still in his seat. Well, he grew into the teenager who doesn't give a toss. <laughs> oh, splendid. <laughs> but uh, Nathan Greno and, and uh, Byron Howard, the uh, the two directors, uh, Howard went on to uh, co-direct Zootopia. So that's, mm. uh, yeah, he's uh, got a, and uh, apparently untitled Lin-Manuel Miranda animation film. Okay. Well... <laughs> He oh. likes money, too. Hamilton. <laughs> I'm holding out for Hamilton. An- an- animated <laughs> Hamilton. Anyway, the- these guys, um, w- when asked about what kind of animation they liked on YouTube, not on the Blu-ray, I might add, uh, they said that they liked the uh, the stuff from the 50s. Uh, so that's Cinderella and um, uh, Sleeping Beauty. And, and that's that's the era when Walt came back after the war and tried to really put time and money and effort into painting Disney films. And then they went into the Xerox process and everything seemed a lot more kind of, you know, cheap and cheerful and, 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 and like we can get this done and not spend too much money on it. And for some reason, people seem to like it more than our painted, beautiful, totally sincere princess films. And I suppose Lady and the Tramp and um, uh, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland are coming mm. It's a different well. kind of sincerity, though. They are sincerity for children, not teenage girls, which mm. the... Not necessarily that their audience were teenagers, but the the fairy tale princess theme is designed to appeal to girls who are looking ahead to where they're going to be in a few years. It's mm. still pretty huge for little girls, though. I mean, the, yeah. when we were at, at Disney World, there were like quite a few like little girls just meeting Disney princesses who were thrilled to actually be there. Mm, yeah, but Lady and the Tramp is for the kids that aren't, aren't even at that stage yet. Who just like dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything still, with whiskers. <laughs> still me. Still me. <laughs> Luckily, Tangled also has you covered for pe- for an animal that isn't a dog, but sort thinks of thinks it's a, it's dog. a dog. I, he's my favourite. He's my absolute favourite in the entire my Oh, my God. Um, if I can interject real quick. Go for it, yeah. um, so you were asking about the difference between the different animation styles between Pixar, Disney, DreamWorks. And the one thing that I've noticed or that I've kind of categorized them. So if you're looking at uh, Disney, especially Tangled, um, it's very fluid. Everything feels very soft but but cool in a sort of it moves very smoothly and there's and it's very lush and it feels very um you know, you were talking about the lighting. Well, I'm thinking about the perspective, which is a unique thing to uh, the the 3D uh, computer generated movies. Like you can you can accomplish some of that with the the Disney overlapping. There's a word for it, but they put the cells and they're all on top of each other to get some sort of forced perspective thing. Hmm. Um, I don't know what it's called, but it's a thing. 
Um, but it's but with the 3D animation, especially when you come up on the tower and it kind of does that sweeping shot, it feels very deep. Like it feels like you could reach into the movie mm. and and feel what's going on. Um, Pixar is primarily they don't animate people a lot. I mean, yes, they've got the Incredibles and yes, they have Brave, but you know they've got cars, they've got robots, they've got toys, they've got um, Bugs. okay fish, uh, right. Right, exactly. So their stuff is a little bit more rubbery and cartoony and stuff like that mm. um, because it is, it's more stylized because it's not as much, I mean, Up, I forgot about Up, but... Um, Rats, though. Oh, that's that's kind of a both. Carry on, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Those people were kind of secondary, though. Yeah. As is, is as same in Toy Story. Yeah. I mean, Andy and his mother are sort of peripheral to the actual drama that's going on. Yeah, the focus is um, on non-humans most of the right. time. Yeah. Um, with uh, DreamWorks, what what strikes me about their animation style is it always feels like it's cobbled together a little bit, like it's almost crunchy. Like it, it, like when you're looking at How to Train Your Dragon, mm. the the outfits, and I partly it's because of the fact that it was the Vikings and blah blah blah. But it almost looks like there's not a lot of smoothness to it. It's very jerky movements, very kind of plodding, and and um, yes, the dragons. Well, actually, Toothless is the only, like, smooth dragon. All the rest of them are kind of, you know, not pretty. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of, like, lumped together, like, pieces of this and pieces of this, and they kind of shoved it together and made something. And it's it's wonderful, and it's delightful all in its own style. But it it doesn't have the same fluidity and the softness of Mm -hmm. Disney and Disney princesses and and all of that. Um, And that's one of the things that I noticed about watching Tangled again, and I hadn't seen it in a while, was just how smooth it felt. Just watching it, um, and yes, you can you know you you feel like you can touch parts of it that are not smooth, like the the what is it the cuddly duckling or whatever. Mm. Um, snuggly duckling. The, the snuggly duckling. The, the gentlemen in that particular establishment seem a little oh, bit more crunchy. crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> Very crunchy. Smell like color brown. <laughs> well, stinky, mm. well, bloody, but um, but it does feel like it's a lot more like uh, silky. Smooth, that kind of texture thing. We're presented with a lot of things that feel like, um, uh, what's the word? Tactile? Yes. That you would would want to touch them. Mm. I've got a bullet point here which does tie in with that, which is a notable delicacy of the body. Almost everything that we've mentioned so far, the Pixar's, the DreamWorks, definitely the Blue Skies, the human beings in it, the, mm-hmm. They have these kind of like rubber hands and, and, and they, they, yeah. they move with jerky movements and they're kind of like doll people, like plastic figures or something like that. Mm-hmm. But these characters feel so alive and it's exemplified. And I'll, I'll keep coming back to this like a foot fetishist, but ta- <laughs> Rapunzel's bare feet have a sensuousness to them, which means she's feeling the outside world. And that conveys an unconscious message to the viewer that they are kind of wrapped in up, up in that as well. If she'd been running around in great big army boots the whole time, it would have felt different. But there's a certain delicacy of the body which gives her a vulnerability as well. And when she gets close to Eugene as well, that they have that kind of... Their skin is luminescent as well. It's um, I, I, like... TMNT, that um, CG Ninja Turtles film from 2007, in that film, 
uh, in the making of, they were talking about how the layers of skin on just the green turtles they had built up repeatedly so that the light bounced in off the lowest layer and then back out through the skin. Now, if they did that on Ninja Turtles, you can damn well bet they did that on Tangled and then some. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, with the theme being light, they that gives everything a glow mm. um, when it's intended to be appealing and to draw you into the the wider themes of the of the story. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean about the, the the delicacy of, and it's it's not just in Rapunzel; it's in most of them. But the I think what that builds up for me is an empathy with the character that I don't always get when I'm watching an animated film. And a, and when I say an empathy, I mean a sense of being in their physicality. So, yeah, when her f- bare feet touch the grass, I can feel that. When she I has do. her hair put in the plait with the flowers in, mm. I can feel the weight of that behind me. It's, it's Actually, just the hair in general, because... Like if you're a lady with long hair, you can. I'm assuming you can feel when someone touches it or grabs it yeah. or something. Like oh, it's yeah. it's got it's got sensory prop- properties to it. So yeah. she's sensing everything because the the hair is dragging out seventy feet behind her. Absolutely, and that actually, <laughs> I'm leaping ahead a little bit on here because this is more an analysis of of Rapunzel's character. But that ties in with what Gothel has trained her to be, which is incredibly. Um, and my brain's gone and there is a there's a specific word for it and it's when you live your life in a state of high alert that you are aware to the point of being scared of everything around you all the time now part of what the humans uh what's considered to be extrasensory but it's not actually it's just sensory is the fact that if someone is close to you the hairs on the back of your neck go up you can feel changes in hypersensitive the hypersensitive would you. do yes yeah. and and her happen. having so much hair mm. she'd really feel that constantly like anyone else around would immediately have all of her alarms going whoa hang on this isn't right get Where off my are hair they? get off the hair <laughs> <laughs> wherever you are in the room you're stepping on my hair please stop um could everyone yeah. in within 70 feet of me just back away <laughs> Absolutely. The hair on her back of her neck goes out. Everybody in a, like a ten foot radius is going to get stabbed. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, the last thing about the uh, the world, it felt it felt like I suppose the closest. It was the first Disney film that I, I'd seen that I felt like Uncharted or a similar Ooh. Zelda style video game that I just really wanted to explore. Mm. So it like like I said, this all plays back into uh, Rapunzel's need to explore. But there's almost no straight lines anywhere. And Pixar work a lot of the time with straight lines. One of the first things that you see in Toy Story is Andy's bed. It dominates that whole bedroom. And it's just this straight line thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a child's bedroom. It's got these corners and uh, they, you know, they work in office blocks in, um, in The Incredibles. Then they go to the city and there's these great big, like, straight tall buildings. Mm. And obviously with Finding Nemo, there's a lot more roundiness. But it's in, in Tangled, there's almost, I can't think, even the things that are supposed to be straight have like a little bit of an arc to them. The castle walls, you know, <laughs> yeah. they've got a bow and a bend yeah. and, a, and a sense of being shaped rather than just grid-like. But again, I think that ties in with um, 
this, this is about nature hmm. and I mean by that both nature as in the trees and leaves and grass and ducks and horses and apples etc and nature of a person and how that grows when it's not being hampered by someone else and it doesn't grow in straight lines it curves and twists and bends all over the place i forgot to mention the snuggly duckling um did you guys see that um it's it's clearly this was part of the development process it began as a pub next to a tree but then time went by the tree grew bigger and larger and other words for big (laughs) <laughs> and it grew massive gargantuan it, it grew sideways into the pub so if you look carefully that the pub is dominated by this like wonderful old tree that's pushing its branches through the windows and it's 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 kind of what did you what was the metaphor you came up with Sharon? as in like these the men inside. Oh yeah, there. that's the the guys in the pub, the the clientele. This is their true nature growing through the the superficial, um, uh, masculine social ritual that they do in the pub. You hear what she called us, clientele. Very good. I've got my mother's love. I shouldn't ask for more I've got so many things I should be thankful for Yes, I have everything Except, I guess, a door Perhaps it's better that I stay in But tell me, when will my life Let's move on to the characters because it's been 43 minutes and we haven't started on character one yet. <laughs> right. Uh, do you guys want to do Mother Gothel or do you want to do Rapunzel from the beginning? Ooh, I have a lot to say about Mother Gothel. <laughs> okay. Sh- should we do Mother Gothel first? Because like we've, we've already described uh, Rapunzel's sensitivity and um, vulnerability. So now we can go darker and, and, and talk about Gothel. Now, I've got a question that can frame the discussion and we can go on from there. Is Mother Gothel the last operatic, campy, and funny Disney villain? Main villain. <sighs> Hmm. Huh. And if so, why? Your Ursula. Mm. Your Scar. Yeah. Even yeah. your, your uh, oh, Madame def- Tremaine. Definitely your judge yeah. called Frollo. Um, yeah. Your Maleficent. want to know. Yeah, I think you can make a very strong case for that. I'm not seeing any other examples when I look down uh-huh. this okay, so film list. By that design... What are they now if they're not Ursula and Scar and uh, Judge Claude Frollo? What are they now since Tangled in the past eight years? Mm. They more represent like the establishment. And um, I mean, you think about Moana and that was Teka and and that's not the establishment. That's that's different. Um, but she was um, well, she perverting was the natural of order of things. Yeah. I, right. I, it so still was, counts. And and. 
And was was she the villain, or was Maui the villain, or was? Um, and there Crazy you go. Like, it's guy. not even clear. Like, yeah. I mean, T- Tamatoa is totally in the vein of Ursula. Like, you know, just crazy yeah. camp. But he's in one scene, and that's it. And he is not plotting anything. He just goes, "Oh," as soon as <laughs> Mary the turns shiny up. Thing. <laughs> but no, it's uh, like he's not. Like, there's no <clears throat> great plotting villain in Moana. Think about the villain in Big Hero Six. We're going to have to kind of spoil the next few films, because otherwise we can't discuss them, folks. So if you really haven't seen them and don't want some of them spoiled, because some of them are kind of spoilers. Zootopia, definitely. <laughs> um, that, but we've got to talk about this, because, okay, so what other studio minds its villains as heroes of the establishment? Well, Pixar, to a Bingo. certain degree. Absolutely. Not just to a certain degree. Almost Always. You start a Pixar film, you ask yourself, right, who is the mayor? Who is the best person at what they do in this society? Who does everyone look up to and think, why can't you be more like this person? There's your villain. There's your villain. (laughs) They're the bastard. And they will seem genial to begin with. They'll be sort of like, well, I just want what's best for this company. I'm not sure we'll be able to survive. But, you know, we'll keep trying. And it turns out they're the corrupt one. They're the one who's actually totally selfish or even just that they're, they're taking what they want or they, they, they think. That, like, Water Noose was doing, in, in um, Monsters, Inc., was doing something that he felt was a necessary evil. He wasn't like sort of, yes. He was just sort of, well, let's make children scream instead. It's but it is, it is generally because at least in part, or it started as, they felt that the thing, the good thing they'd built was being threatened. Yeah. And this was the only way that they could defend it. It's a nice, complex character, but it's mm. every Pixar villain. And it's starting to get a little... like. So I watched Coco, and I was like, well, I'm guessing, yep. <laughs> and it was fine, because Coco hit me over and over again in the fields. But it's definitely a Pixar film. <laughs> Well, and a, a lot of it, if you look at the next true uh, Disney princess movie, mm-hmm. that's a perfect example of the villain being genial and, you know, spoiler alert, um, seeming like a really great guy. And then throughout the movie, you realize that he is actually the one kind of orchestrating a lot of mm. the badness. Um, and I think, you know, Zootopia with the – that was sort of a um, – establishment trying to it's it's more about not ultimate power but power over others and not like pure evil and i want to rule the world but just like i want to be in a position of power some and might I, say that pixar villains the uh, power mongers are actually better written than real life power mongers <laughs> well yes yeah. they have some complexity let's not let's not we're not gonna but, go there but I think, I think if there's a if there's a difference no. between these uh, more recent, um, more mm. layered um, power brokering villains and the operatic, mm. over the top, um, very black and white villains, and there's a third type which is the I'm doing the right thing, and you can see that they're not sure and they're still doing terrible well, things and they need to be stopped. Villain. Your tragic villain, yeah. Um, but the 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 Mother Gothel type, your Ursulas, um, your Scars, that what they are about is vanity, is 
um, is it's power, but it's not power for the sake of what you can do with that power. They mm. literally just want everybody to look at them. They want everybody to pay attention yeah. to them. They're narcissists. They want... Oh, Scar- stop, you big lug. Exactly. Scar does not want to be king so that he can do anything with that kingship. He just wants to be the king. So he can play golf. Basically, Scar and Sarabi are basically the same. I'm just saying. So they they would both have sold us out to the hyenas. Come on, we'll be here all night. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, so the Scar, there is no food. You could. I mean, Gothel is a really good um, kind of brain's gone again. There's a word. Perfect. Hinge when you have things that balance fulcrum? on a fulcrum. That'll fulcrum. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gothel's a really good fulcrum character for this because you only have to add a few more lines to her backstory and you change her into the more complex villain. Mm. If she, if you look at the way she behaves towards uh, Rapunzel and her her overprotectiveness mm. and her uh, instilling this terror of the outside world and, um, you know, ruffians will take you away and these people will be terrible to you and they will just want to use you. If we knew she had at some point in her past been treated that way... By Grandmother Gothel. Yeah, feasibly so, and was simply... One scene is all it would have taken. What she perceived to be the genuine truth, that makes her a much more complex character. The fact that we know she is doing it solely because Rapunzel has this power that she wants all to herself and doesn't want anybody else to get to, that's what makes her simplistic and over the top and operatic and means we can laugh at her because there isn't that thread of tragic sympathy that she would engender if we had I do death. still feel a little bit sorry for her, but you're, it's, this is what I said on Blade, where it's like if you overthink everything, if you're compassionate to everyone, sometimes you can't just enjoy a really good good versus evil story. But that's the thing. She has many, many opportunities to change what she's doing. Yeah. Every time Rapunzel says to her, I'm sure it can't possibly be that bad, it's really important to me that you let me go outside. If she'd melted just a little and said okay, I love you and I want you to have this thing, then she can turn it all around. She rejects those opportunities over and over again and she keeps going back to the manipulation because she's terrified to lose the thing that she has become so attached to, which is not Rapunzel, it is her youth. Yeah. Yeah. She was dressed very deliberately in clothing that was 400 years older in the original styling to what Rapunzel's wearing. She's a character trapped in the past, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you want to dig deeper, does make her sympathetic. But she is so spectacularly horrible and so much <laughs> fun as well. She might be, I'm having trouble thinking of a better Disney villain. Like it's, it's her and Scar. Uh, for, for, not better Disney villains, just a, a Disney villain that I prefer. Not in terms of liking, but just uh, like uh, in boo hissability, like just eating up the screen. And her performance, specifically her singing performance, (laughs) tells you so much about her. And it's done in this style which kind of brings in both Liza Minnelli and Barbara Streisand (laughs) (laughs) uh, to to be kind of this astonishingly domineering mother figure. But there's so many little details in her performance 
that I think she might have actually unnerved some people. Like they, that that while you're watching her, you think, yeah, I could kind of see a little bit of mother or grandmother or aunt mm. or someone well, that I know in this, or even real. father. That's the thing. She's real. She is a a, a threatening narcissistic parent. Mm. They are. I was going to say they exist, but frankly, they are rife. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that she is something of a hybrid now that I think of it between the two villain categories. You've got the theatrical Radigan, who is basically all the theatricality, and I'm evil, and it's and it's fun, and like those characters are a great time. The Maleficence and all those others, mm. and then there's the sort of more current generation, like a Pixar-esque type villain, who's someone who you don't immediately recognize, who is in there behind the scenes, and is kind of teaching kids that like villains don't put cat cowls on and call themselves out there there are villains like villains are invisible but they are around and they're the ones causing evil whether they're the people working within the establishment for personal gains like hurting others or people who are like mother gothel if like emotionally manipulative or people who like uh oh what's his name in the first incredible syndrome in the incredibles movie just like Toxic a fan spurned who goes who goes that, that's that's the name a spurned fan who just turns into like this the worst kind of like toxic destructive force like it mm. gothel somewhere between she's got that theatricality that is so fun that ursula style but her manipulation and the way she interacts with the character is subtle and it, like much more grounded and real like just like the way real people awfully treat each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i actually had mother gothel i have notes and one of them was Mother Gothel, Liza Minnelli, Elizabeth Taylor, Cher. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Cher yes, with, the hair, with the hair. With the curls, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and Cher and they both have this sort of like, there's like a sultry sexuality. Because mm. um, she, she does, I mean, I'm not going to, she's, she's kind of hot when she's oh, yeah. young. Mm-hmm. And um, she kind of has like the big eyes and she's kind of, you know, does the like heavy lidded looks and. Very, she's very sinuous and sensual in her movements, mm. which is sort of snake-like, if you will. But she, yeah. she is, she definitely does have a lot of the um, Jafar and Scar and Ursula and Maleficent kind of vibes, which are some of my favorite Disney villains. Which is why, why I was like, I hate her and I love her and I hate her. <laughs> and she also is, you know, she is that overprotective parent that seems not wrong like in like they're wrong but they they make it seem so reasonable Mm. and and it's so emotionally manipulative and it's so twisted in the way that she isolates i mean it it, well we can go on and on about this but the whole like um well the whole thing about the mother knows best song is rife with such like cliche red flags of an abusive relationship or an abusive whether whether it's a romantic or 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 a parent child or whatever of this like you can only trust me i know what's best for you and then she like cuts her down you don't know what you you know you're you're so fragile you'll Mm. you won't be able to handle yourself out there you have to allow me to take care of you and also everybody out there is horrible and in and it's like she she built herself Mother Gothel builds herself up and tears Rapunzel down and makes her, you know, gives her Stockholm Syndrome Mm. in a way that's so devious and twisted. And it, like, I love her theatricality. And if she was a, like, a, a, um, 
like one of the heroes, it would be phenomenal. But she's as a villain, she's a, it's because she has such likable qualities in the theatricality. It makes her minim- emotional manipulation hurt more yeah. because it's like you want to like her and yet she's doing things that are so horrible and and she's sort of covering them in this like sugar coating and it's just poison within i'm divided in two when i watch it because like i said and and like you said that she's so much fun part of me is singing along and and just you know like mimicking her actions because they're so ostentatious and part of me is crying inside for what this is doing to rapunzel Mm -hmm. it's a weird dichotomy Mm. one of the Mm -hmm. most significant things that she does in in mother knows best as well which i picked up on this time is it's not just about the the overbearing, the I know what's best for you, the patronising, the constantly talking down to her, patting her on the head, calling her pet names and um, and implying that she's a lot younger than she is. That's the other thing. Rapunzel is 18 mm. in this. She's she is an adult her, yeah. and she infantilises her terribly. Um, but we she, could be sisters. She manipulates and directs Rapunzel's honest affection. Rapunzel genuinely feels caring and love towards her. Mm. And Gothel never authentically, honestly returns that. There are two moments in this song where Rapunzel goes to hold her. Mm. The first time it's revealed to be the mannequin, so she hasn't even got hold of a real mother at all. And the she, second she jumps time, away at the last possible second and puts the mannequin in place. Exactly. Fantastic blocking. Um, and the second one is at the very end, she does actually mm-hmm. embrace Rapunzel very, very briefly and then she pushes her away and says something cutting and brutal to her. To be emotionally inaccessible. Exactly. And it's like, it's like you, I will accept the love that you give me to a point, but I have control of it and I will hold it away when I want to. She does give her some affection, but it's not at Rapunzel. It's at Rapunzel's hair. Bingo. Yeah. And it's not, um, and I don't think Rapunzel's catching that in the beginning. I mean, uh, she picks up on it later on, obviously, but when she, the whole thing about, like, I love you very much, dear. I love you more. I love you most. She's talking to the hair. Mm. Like, she's not, Rapunzel is just kind of the... Receptacle. The, yeah, like, she's the, <laughs> the set piece that the hair happens to be resting on. Mm. And it's, it's the hair the that hair is her she endowment. Is, yeah. So it's, it's she she's getting affection, Rapunzel's getting affection, but it's not really to her. It's But she's getting enough of, like, the splashback from it. It's probably a bad analogy. But um, that I think it's enough to keep her going. And I'm going to say um, a lovely little counterpoint of, you know, abusive relationships and stuff like this is that they will dig you down, you know, push you down, push you down, push you down, and then give you crumbs. And then you're like, this is the best thing ever. And you are so thankful for just the little tiny bits of whatever that it that it feels like, you know, that that's easy to forgive. And so, you know, Mother Gothel is, is very good at this and, and good in, in the skillful way, not in the good versus evil way where she she knows just when she's reached that breaking point. And then she pulls her back in and is like, oh, darling, I'm only saying this because I, I truly care about you and I want you to be safe. And it's enough to keep Rapunzel sustained and invested and not, you know, not more rebellious. Mm. She keeps her very well um, um, smushed. 
I'm so <laughs> pleased this is a musical. Can you imagine their relationship if Gothel never sang and it was just a oh. passive-aggressive statement? She'd be funny as hell, but there'd be a, a genuine uneasiness about it. The singing <clears throat> gives us a little bit of a release because, like mm. I said, it's so much fun yeah, that yeah. the kids would just be, why is she being so mean to her? <laughs> you want to go outside? Oh, why, Rapunzel, look at you as fragile as a flower. Still a little sapling, just a sprout. You know why we stay up in this tower. I know, but that's right, to keep you safe and sound, dear. Guess I always knew this day was coming. Knew that soon you'd want to leave the nest. Soon, but not yet. But shh, trust me, pet. Mother knows best. Mother knows best. Listen to your mother. It's a scary world out there. Mother knows best. One way or another, something will go wrong, I swear. Ruffians, thugs, poison ivy, quicksand, cannibals and snakes, the plague. No. Yes, also large bugs, men with pointy teeth, and stop no more. You'll just upset me. Mother's right here. Mother will protect you. Darling, here's what I suggest. Skip the drama, stay with Mama. Mother knows best. Go ahead, get trampled by a rhino. Go ahead, get mugged and left for dead. Me, I'm just your mother, what do I know? I only bathed and changed and nursed you. Go ahead and leave me, I deserve it. Let me die alone here, be my guest. When it's too late, you see, just wait. your mumsy on your own you won't survive sloppy underdressed immature clumsy please they'll eat you up alive gullible naive positively grumpy ditzy and a bit well vague plus i believe getting kind of chubby i'm just saying cause i want you mother understands mother's here to help you all i have is one request Ever ask to leave this tower again? Yes, Mother. Oh, I love you very much, dear. I love you more. I love you most. Hmm. Don't forget it. You regret it. Mother knows best. One of the reasons that it's so effective is because this is all Rapunzel's ever known. Mm. It she yeah. she literally is not aware that there is another way of doing it, and and it's 
it's juxtaposed quite nicely against how Flynn, when he is still Flynn, does actually try to manipulate <laughs> her a little bit in his own way. Oh, yeah. When they first come out of the tower and he's doing the whole, you know, it'll break her heart, but it's it's part of growing up. It's just, you know, that natural rebelliousness. You need a little bit of that. It'll destroy your mother. but And he's trying <laughs> to manipulate her, but he's telling her the truth. It totally is natural. It's this rebellious feeling that you're getting. Hang on to that. Maximise that. <laughs> Maximus that. Maximus that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but she's... Love that horse. <laughs> she's spent her entire life being, uh, the word is gaslit, as in mm. she's had the whole world described to her erroneously. Mm. It is... And every time she tries to question it because she's read a book or seen something out of the window, it gets shot down in flames. Yeah. However, I'd like to point out, does she only have three books? And... I'd like to think she got them switched occasionally, Mm. but Mm. at the moment, only three, yeah. Because otherwise she's got three episodes of Sea Sport Run. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, the tower appears to be in this, like, valley, so she doesn't really see anything or anyone. Mm. So she is so isolated in, in her physicality, and also she's not allowed to read. I, I watched this with my mother last night, and she made the comment... I said, you know, obviously her mother Gothel goes and gets her paint, and she obviously has to give her some supplies to make dresses and what have you. Um, so why didn't she bring her more books? And my mom said, well, then she'd learn more about the outside world. Mm, and I was like, well, that's a good point. Okay, yeah, fair point. And then I also said, why didn't she bring her shoes? But I guess if you're in the tower all the time, you don't need <laughs> Don't go outside. But- You'll cut your feet. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't be stubbing her toes all the time or that she's got such beautiful, delicate feet because they've just been running on the... Is it boards or stonework up it's, there? It's floorboards. Okay, boards. With, uh, but there's like, stonework too, though. Yeah, but they'd also but be kind of filthy on the bottom as well. We never see the oh, bottom yeah. of her feet and go, Ugh. They'd, they'd be, very they'd be all she sweeps a lot, <laughs> <laughs> she, she sweeps an awful lot. That's true, true. true. It's like you're part of the song. <laughs> Your point about the uh, Gothel's attention to the hair, like actually, like I hadn't really thought of this before, but part of why this angle of the playing Mother Gothel as affectionate sort of to Rapunzel works so well and that the hair is her focus is that like, Touching and playing with somebody's hair is a very intimate, loving, caring thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so, like, two, it helps it make all the more sense that Rapunzel would never think twice about her, the the way Gothel treats her. In that, like, if someone is playing with your hair all the time and embracing you, like, that Mm. feels like affection. Like, for Gothel, it's clearly like the hair is actually what she cares about, and Rapunzel has no way of knowing that. But, like, that is such a lovely little detailed touch Mm. part Mm -hmm. of it as well i think comes from um speaking as somebody who had very long hair when i was little it it is a bonding thing with your parents when they brush Mm -hmm. your hair and it part of that is it goes back to ape grooming not kidding on this the the (laughs) the sensation of having your um your hair lifted um for People who uh, experience ASMR, it triggers kind of a tingly sensation. What you're feeling there is your um, the, the part of your nervous system that kicks in to switch off your adrenaline response. It's, it's your body literally telling you, you're safe, it's calm, you can relax, you don't have to be on high alert. Oh. Mm. So Gothel 
constantly brushing and playing with her hair, as well as the uh, emotional connection that that gives, it is literally going to be flooding her with the chemicals that say, everything is okay. I am looking after you. You are safe. So she would connect that with safety and security. (laughs) Two more things about her character design, Gothel, this is. She has bare arms, which gives us a fantastic energy bar for this aging process. Whenever she's young and, and, and slender, she sort of she admires the arms repeatedly. And then when she starts mm. to go, she looks at her hand and she looks at the arm and it starts to get all um, uh, wrinkly. And, and, and like, because she wouldn't be able to see her, her own face. With, uh, it would be only us who were party to it. She would have to... Ex- get that she was feeling growing older which is not the same but the um like her anxiety over that uh, and uh, this ties in with the other part of her design which is the cloak she's sort of like when she's got the hood up she's like a nefarious thief like this is the first time we see her she's got this uh, uh, cloak over her and she slinks about in the darkness so that when she then takes it off and she's beautiful this is what she wants to present to the world but with the the hood up, that's who she really is. She's mm-hmm. this slinking, like, you know, you, you say she wants people to notice her, but she only wants them to notice her when she's presenting to the world as, oh, absolutely. as she yeah. wants to feel but inside. But that's, that's the narcissistic thing. You don't want to be seen as you truly are. That's yeah. terrifying because who you truly are is not perfect. It's human. It's flawed. Yeah. And God forbid people should see that. What you want people to see is the image. And the third part of her design is that when she sings the final mother knows best after she's tossing the tiara back to Rapunzel, they tilt her head downwards, her eyes go huge, and it's like the the lighting is green and and darkish blue, and it is this terrifying skull of a face. And it's Mm -hmm. just the same character model from the right angle with the right level of fury on her face. And it makes, it gives us a glimpse into the twisted monster inside her at that point. Mm. Because she's saying at that point that she is absolutely full, never ever defy me again, or you will see this face. Speaking of that song, like points to Alan Minkin as always, but especially here because like, especially with that version of Mother Knows Best, I love his arrangement there because he even though there are plenty of times where she is still speaking delicately or sarcastically somewhat softly like there are a lot of sudden and like sort of startling bum 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 sort of sounds in the music that feel really like threatening and scary but Mm -hmm. then she's back to speaking softly and it really obviously that version of the song is meant to feel much more sinister but she just the sound of her song is just so much more dangerous and unpredictable mm. in that particular instance and just sets me on edge and I really love it. I was going to say Disney likes to use green with their villains, it mm. seems. Mm. Um, she also, Mother Gothel also has like this Dorian Gray sort of aspect of the fact that she shouldn't be alive. Oh, yeah. Like, she's hundreds of years. is old. Like, she's real old. <laughs> like, she she turns to dust at the end because that's what she would have been at that stage. Ooh, yeah. I noticed when, she, when the cloak hits the ground mm-hmm. and the ash dissipates and she's gone, it looks like a swirl of Rapunzel's fallen hair. Literally, uh. all that was left of her was the hair. Mm. Well, she's living the natural order yeah. by... Keeping, you know, using this this in, um, fountain of hair youth eh? um, to to 
prolong her her life for a long, long time. Um, so, I, you know, I think it is sort of, you were talking about how in this world, everything seems very organic, and even the, the straight lines are not straight, they're sort of curvy. Um, she's She's at odds with that. She's at odds with that organicness and that, you know, nature and all of that. So, you know, her come up and yes, yes. Although she has a better nose. Um, <laughs> yeah, better- but, uh, and and Palpatine, like Voldemort, Palpatine, uh, Gothel, Trump, they're all terrified of dying, and oh. they will do whatever it takes to prolong their life. Mm. The the arc that she goes through as well. Her behaviours and the way she tries to get what she wants, there are very distinct phases to it. To begin with, she's doing this whole manipulation that's combined with love and affection because it's working. She's controlling Rapunzel successfully through that. When it gets to the point where Rapunzel is starting to push back and that is no longer getting her what she wants, then she clicks over into this very sinister, um, and again, talking about the light, the green light, Maureen, you're absolutely right. It is very different in character to the goal golden light that suffuses everything else um but that she she then goes right fine i am going to strip you of every tool you could possibly have and throw you out into the world on your own let's see how you manage then and then when rapunzel is doing okay in that context she goes to straight out violence she sets up the situation so that um, Eugene will be hanged. Um, she starts to get physically aggressive with Rapunzel in a, a, yeah. a much more direct way than she ever has been before. And it's because her controlling stops working. So she has to try a different tactic. She uses the phrase, you want me to be the bad guy? Fine, I'm the bad guy. And that is bone-chilling in she terms does that of twice. yeah, in terms of the language of abusers, um, the it's the the look what you made me do sensibility mm-hmm. puts the blame on the person being abused, mm-hmm. so that they and this this happens up to the highest levels. It's not us doing this; we have to do it because it's the law, or they had it coming, or she was dressed mm-hmm. like this, or. Mm-hmm. Were ask, she was asking for it. It's so many she's so often. So uh-huh. much <laughs> refusal to accept your part in this crime. Uh, your, your part in this crime. The, the, the way it works is you abused this person. It's not their fault. It was never their fault. Yeah, victim blaming is a big thing right now. Yeah. Let me tell you what. I mean, it's been a big thing for a while, but it's becoming more and more prevalent. And oh, that gets my back up. <laughs> it's why I'm, really I'm so so behind uh, a couple of movements right now. Just really, really liking them for saying no. It's it's this guy and this guy right. and this guy. Here is what they did, and it's not even really about the punishment so much as the dragging it into the light and saying, "Okay, folks, now you guys decide how you feel about this person." In some cases, prosecution is absolutely necessary. In others, right. it's not. But the information on this is key. The bravery to come forward with the information on this is absolutely key to our cultural progress. It's like they're they're pulling the cloak off of Mother Gothel, mm-hmm. <laughs> putting her into the light. Oh. 
Just one final point I wanted to make about her her look and her aesthetic. When she starts to go and she pulls the hood over her face so mm-hmm. that all you can see is this white mouth underneath and mm-hmm. she just yeah. there's there is a particular monster in horror that she looks a lot like and I can't put my finger on what it is. A dementor? That too. But a I think it's something it's something older. A it's wraith? almost it's almost um a white. Shut up, brain. Brain is saying Count Dooku. I don't mean Count Dooku. Nosferatu. Nosferatu? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Despite Um, how horrible she and despite how awful she is in so many clear ways, like, not only does her... There's something also just sort of amusing and funny about her sensuality, and not in like that she's like, oh, she's old and she's being sexy, but in a way that, like, she's... She has defied aging so much that it's so much her character that she... Like, every time she looks in the mirror, she's just still got this, like, mm. you get the sense that she is enjoying being able to continue being sexy, sensual person. Like, yeah, like, mama still got it against tall odds. Mm. <laughs> I do. I like the fact that she's not a witch, because in yeah. the original Rapunzel story, of course, it was a witch that got shafted because somebody stole her lettuce. Um, and I, I You do, might need to go into that. I, didn't I, I will the lettuce. Hear the rest of that we, story. Is that, the, is that Goffle's background? I have points. The tragic will... story of the lettuce that <laughs> the explains lettuce that it got all. Stolen. It does. Um, no, when we talk about Rapunzel, Hansel and, and Eugene, I will go into that a little right. bit more. Looking forward um, to it. But, Sounds um, salady. <laughs> but the, the fact that she was originally a witch, and obviously this role in the vast majority of um, Christianized fairy tales, she would have been a witch. Um, mm. But she's not. She has no power of her own. Everything, every magic she has, she stole. She stole it from nature when it was in the flower. She stole it from Rapunzel when it was in Rapunzel. I think he likes me. Likes you? Please, Rapunzel, that's demented. This is why you never should have left. Dear, this whole romance that you've invented just proves you're too naive to be here. Why would he like you? Come on now, really. Look at you. You think that he's impressed? Don't be a dummy. Come with mummy. Mother. No. No. Oh. I see how it is. Rapunzel knows best. Rapunzel's so mature now. Such a clever grown-up miss. Rapunzel knows best. Fine, if you're so sure now. Go ahead, then give him this. Ha! This is why he's here. Don't let him deceive you. Give it to him what you see. Trust me, my dear. That's how fast he'll leave you. I won't say I told you so. No, Rapunzel knows best. So if he's such a dreamboat, go and put him to the test. If he's lying, don't come crying. Mother knows best. The one thing I was going to say regarding, um, and we may come up back to this later, but with regards to Mother Gothel, um, the fear of growing older, the fear of death, but also the fear of her looks going, she seems to rely very heavily on that. She sort of flaunts her sensuality to to very good end. Um, And the other thing that I noticed was the the whole mirror symbolism throughout the movie. Um, And 
that kind of ties in with her vanity. Like she's so vain and she wants to keep the same appearance. She wants to stop time in a sense with her, with her looks. And so the mirror has its own place in the the story and there was a, a there's a point and I'm going to I'm going to talk about it now just in case it doesn't come go up later yeah. um when she initially asks mother gothel to go to the lanterns and she says no and there's this whole thing and then Eugene comes and he's in the closet and um mother gothel comes back and she's going to ask her again to go to the lanterns the mirror gets flipped so that it's not reflecting so it's just the wood side mm-hmm. when she starts to ask her and then she says oh um, I really want that paint that you got. That was the shells or whatever. Um, so she, when she's being, when Rapunzel is being deceptive, because Mother Gothel's always deceptive, when Rapunzel's being deceptive, it's almost like the mirror won't reflect anything. It, it's been flipped around. It's, it's, there's no reflection there. Mm. So I think that's a really, in, yeah. And ah. then at the end of, <laughs> <laughs> you almost said it. And then at the end, of course, the whole mirror shattering thing, that's, I mean, that's a big sort of trope that comes up of things like glass shattering or, or windows or, or mirrors or whatever. The sort of splintering of the personality and the splintering of the f- reality that they have. The, mm. the, this was the, the, you know, perfect vision of, oh, sorry, I said the P word. The, well, the, no, actually, no, in her eyes, it was perfect. That's valid. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, she loses control of Rapunzel and everything kind of goes sideways in a big hurry and her and her world shatters and the mirror shatters. So I think that's a very cool kind of, you know, she's when she looks at herself in the mirror, when she's like decomposing, um, you know, it's seeing seeing herself for the first time, but it's splinter because it's not. It's not the that's not the her she wants to see, mm. and that so. maybe is how she interprets the world is the reflection that has her in it, and that I, I, I love that you noticed that about the mirror mooring. That's brilliant. The the idea that the there being no reflection means she can't pick up on the fact that Rapunzel is being deceptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She can't see it because she can only see herself through reflection. Yeah when you guys were talking about the, uh, the, the just the general vanity of her and, and um, the, the, the working it and, and taking pride in that, um, one, it might have been an idea to have just a f- like one minute of this is the average day for Mother Gothel, because where does she go? <laughs> does she just go shopping and go, yes, boys? Or, or what? Where, where is she most of the day? She can't just be slinking around. As you said, like she's working it when she's... Uh, in public, but we very rarely get to see her out in public. So that it feels like there was that little bit missed. It, it could just have been done in a 12-second little thing that just shows what Gothel does with her day, but it almost might have humanized her a bit too much to do that. Yep. It's almost mm-hmm. better that we don't know because we're seeing everything from Rapunzel's point of view. Mm. And the other thing is, she kind of reminds me of the movie Death Becomes Her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is worth Absolutely. seeing again. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Goldie Horn looking at her ass in the mirror. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so on to our star, Rapunzel. Mm-hmm. 
And the question is, I'm going to give you both of these because they, they kind of lead together. How is Rapunzel a more complex kind of Disney princess than what we've had before? And uh, what defenses does she have? You've kind of mentioned a couple of them already, but this plays into why she's a more complex princess. So go for it. And Dan, by all means, jump in on this as well. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> I mean, the frying pan's kind of obvious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal is also kind of obvious. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. You can't just say frying pan. What, what does the frying pan give her? What does it do? Well, she uses it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't think she ever thought of that as a as a thing before. She never had to have a weapon before necessarily. But, um, you know, she's obviously cooked because the whole song about her day and all the baking she does. Um, so she, she has as a tool as well, at least one, like when she's oh, trying yeah. to chip away at the rocks. But it, it also kind of shows how um, inexperienced she is with using it as a weapon when she hits herself in the face, um, and which is something I would do. But she, um, you know, it, she uses that as a weapon, and it becomes she takes it with her, and they always manage to get it back. So, like, it, even when they're like in the water, they they pull it out, um, and it comes with them. It's it's a part of her tower that she that she brings with her on the quest quest trip thing it's kind of a um, quest. Yeah. quest to find the um, and it's it's kind of like her security blanket in a way that Pascal is not um, although he's also freaking rad and I freaking love that little frog I mean chameleon um, <laughs> based on a real life chameleon by the way one of the, uh, the, the I think one of the animating team had just got a chameleon called Pascal <laughs> and they were like that is a great name can we use it <laughs> I believe it. He's adorable. Um, But yeah, I think that's... And then, of course, as the movie progresses, other people learn how wonderful the frying pan can be as a weapon. And, you know, at the end of the movie, it's uh, part of the the army. (laughs) I love that that's a thing as well. No, they don't foist more better and advanced weapons on her. Yeah, she's not Everyone else picks up her Frying pan. Frying pan. Yeah. Um, and it's it's <laughs> multi-use, that's the thing. A frying pan is not just a weapon. It's like you Thor's hammer. With it. It's like Mjolnir, yeah. which is also <laughs> can, a tool. It can be used as a tool, as a, as a weapon to destroy, or a, a pan to cook. Indeed. There you go. <laughs> you, you can nurture or control with it. It's also like uh, Arthur Dent's <laughs> towel in Hitchhiker's. Yes, it's very uh, uh, interesting, interesting that you should bring him up, and also, Maureen, with you on this quest trip, thing um, because it's very hobbity <laughs> yeah, that she has a frying pan, pan and she's got bare feet secret hobbit she's a hobbit well like she's Cannon. used to this this like uh, idyllic country existence <laughs> yeah. just eating and baking it's a shire and... with a very tall tower um, but just just skipping on slightly from the frying pan to Pascal there's other um, things about Rapunzel I think personally <laughs> that there is something very significant about the fact that her animal sidekick is a chameleon um, and male Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a it's an animus manifestation, which the let's you're saying that like, has, like well, obviously it's an animus manifestation. Like this isn't obvious we've done to most people. Of these yeah, now. We, we have, <laughs> but like that they know what I'm 
talking about? Well, it's just an. I'd animal. like to think it, he's her demon. It's yeah, he's her demon. He's the he's the the part of her that she externalizes with that she talks through her plan with. And we've you know we've talked about having the animal sidekick is great because it means that the uh, the main character can Doesn't talk about insane. the things that are going on in their life without seeing <laughs> completely off the wall. Um, but but yeah, on a, a psychological level, that's a part of her um, that she can communicate with and. Can Pascal exhibits inner parts of Rapunzel's uh, self that she isn't quite ready to express herself? It's Pascal that first starts saying, let's go out there, that looks awesome. Um, and then Rapunzel follows suit. It's Pascal that sticks up for her initially when she's um, being threatened. It's Pascal that wakes um, Eugene up in the very inventive manner. <laughs> <laughs> and then she put her tongue in his ear afterwards. Indeed. Um, but the 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 manifestation of uh, a lot, not all, uh, but a lot of children who grow up in families where they are exposed to the kind of behaviour that Gothel exhibits, they grow up to become very chameleonic. They, they learn as a defence mechanism, as a survival mm-hmm. mechanism, that you try to please the big person that has total control over your life. You be whatever they want you to be to the best of your ability because the day might come when that saves your life. If they're in a really, really bad mood and you look at them wrong, if you've become chameleonic enough, you might be able to avoid that. And it is very difficult mm-hmm. to stop doing that later in life. Well, and it also comes back to the whole, like, seeing your true self when you, when Mother Gothel doesn't want to see her true self, mm. as she would be. She she is chameleonizing. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> chameleonizing herself. We'll see. Um, it. If it's not a word, it should be. Creating the thing she wants to see using her environment, which is what the chameleon does as well. It um, uses the environment to change colors. Um, and she's using Rapunzel to change her appearance so that it matches up with what she wants to see. Mm. She's very skilled as well. Oh, yeah. That's, you mean Rapunzel? Yeah, that's something that's really fascinating mm. about her. She, she's this isn't to Mary Sue. She's, as opposed God, to the very early Snow White Cinderella type princess, she reminds me of a Jane Austen heroine. Mm. The idea that women that in that era had to have all of these accomplishments. They had to be able to play the piano. They had to be able to draw. They had to be able to do, you know, flower arrange and all this stuff. <gasps> None of it really giving them any kind of function. Like, they could have manifested great careers out of all of this stuff. But it was just to prove that they hadn't just been sat on their thumb eating bonbons <laughs> their whole <laughs> pre-married life. It's, um, it's self-driven on her part, too. Like, or at least it very seems to be. Like, she's... She is intensely creative as a person. Like I, I, I think it's in some interview somewhere, Keen said that he found a lot of inspiration for Rapunzel because he always finds inspiration for his characters from some family member in his daughter, who he describes as an irrepressible artist. The fact that Rapunzel seems to have taught herself very basic astronomy, like she's developed a very impressive painting style and she cooks and she does hair and makes puppets and dresses and clothes. Like, I don't think these are things that Gothel told her to do or learn to do. I think she just keeps herself entertained and has just found a lot of interests Mm -hmm. along the way. She just said, you know, can you bring me a guitar or a musical instrument of some kind? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so she's 
been uh, keeping staving off boredom because she just has this natural desire to do things. Mm. And that is a very natural oh. impulse in children to be constantly going, I want to try this, I want to try that. And, and that's kind of the whole point of being a child, that you go through all of these potential interests and hopefully a few of them will stick and you will carry on with them. Um, but she's got so much time on her hands mm. that they all stick. <laughs> When one lives in a tower alone, one has a lot of time to learn these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. She ties it to Fiona quite neatly Uh, with that. Yeah. I didn't initially make the Fiona connection until you were talking about the fact that she's learned all the stuff. Um, Pascal and Maximus are a nonverbal version of Puss in Boots and Donkey. Mm. In their in their <laughs> mannerisms and the way that they interact together, so I think this is also kind of a um, you know she is the softer version, more uh, mm, uh, more delicate version of of Fiona in that she has taught herself all of these things because you know she's bored, she's locked in a tower. What the heck is she going to do? Mm. Um, yeah, that's sorry. I just made that connection, and I was like, "Oh, it's exciting." <laughs> I, I wonder now that you think now that I think about it, like given that so much of this was started with the direction "Do it like Shrek," did, uh-huh. I wonder if they were meant to talk at some point. I'm so glad they didn't. Me too. But I'm I just so like I had that didn't. thought. God, do it like Shrek. Like if if that was ever up in the Disney offices, I would have vomited ink. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think there's a reason we have Chicken Little and. No, there is a reason we have Chicken Little. That Chicken Little is the most do it like Shrek movie I can picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like Shrek, but terrible. <laughs> just smell the grass, the dirt, just like I dreamed they'd be. Just feel that summer breeze, the way it's calling me. For like the first time ever, I'm completely I can't help but notice you seem a little at war with yourself here. What? Now, I'm only picking up bits and pieces, of course. Overprotective mother, forbidden road trip. I mean, this is serious stuff. But let me ease your conscience. This is part of growing up. A little rebellion, a little adventure. That's good. Healthy, even. (laughs) You think? I know. You're way overthinking this, trust me. Does your mother deserve it? No. Would this break her heart and crush your soul? Of course. 
But you've just got to do it. Break her heart? In half. Crush her soul? Like a grape. She would be heartbroken, you're right. I am, aren't I? Oh, bother. All right, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm letting you out of the deal. What? That's right, but don't thank me. Let's just turn around and get you home. Here's your pan, here's your frog. I get back my satchel, you get back a mother-daughter relationship based on mutual trust, and voila, we part ways as unlikely friends. No, I am seeing those lanterns. Oh, come on! What is it gonna take for me to get my satchel back? I will use this. Is it ruffians? Folks, have they come for me? Stay calm. It can probably smell fear. Oh, sorry. Guess I'm just a little bit jumpy. Probably be best if we avoid ruffians and thugs, though. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably be best. Are you hungry? I know a great place for lunch. Uh, where? Oh, don't you worry. You'll know it when you smell it. So one of the things I I love most about Rapunzel, one of the reasons that she is in my like top five, possibly even top three Disney princesses, mm-hmm. is how true to herself she ends up being, and how her inner self and her natural self is so irrepressible that it doesn't matter how much gets piled on top of it and a lot gets piled on top of it Mm -hmm. they cannot keep it down and it comes out in the painting that's a really key marker for her character that that she's painting memories she doesn't know their memories but that's what they are the lanterns are sort of this this memory marker for her it started when she was a baby and it, it sticks with her for the rest of her life life um but she is going through all of this with an internal impulse that is stronger than the values and the instructions that she interjects from Gothel and you see that almost straight away when she comes out of the tower she has that manic day where she's constantly running around changing her mind about what the situation is but when it finally comes down to it, when uh, when Flynn says to her, "You're right. If it's it's that bad, we should go. We should take you back to the tower right now." No, it's a no, because she realizes that her need to go out there and be herself is more important than the reign that her mother has her on, and yeah. that was when I fell in love with her. I'm malicious, mean and scary. My snicker-curdled dairy. And violence-wise, my hands are not the cleanest. But despite my evil look and my temper and my hook, I've always yearned to be a concert pianist. Can't you see me on the stage performing Mozart? Tickling the eyebrows till they clean. Yep, I'd rather be called deadly for my killer show too medley. Thank you! Cause way down deep inside I've got a dream He's got a dream, he's got a dream See I ain't as cruel and vicious as I see Though I do like breaking femurs You can count me with the dreamers Like everybody else I've got a dream 
scars and lumps and bruises Plus something here that oozes And let's not even mention my complexion But despite my expert toes And my goiter and my nose I really wanna make a love connection Can't you see me with the special little lady Rowing in a rowboat down the stream Though I'm one disgusting blighter I'm a lover, not a fighter Cause way down deep inside I've got a dream I've got a dream, he's got a dream, I've got a dream, he's got a dream, and I know one day romance will reign supreme. Though my face leaves people screaming, there's a child behind it dreaming. Like everybody else, I've got a dream. Toad like to quit and be a florist. Gunter does interior design. Wolf is into mine. Attila's cupcakes are sublime. And it's killer souls, and it's little puppet shows. And Vladimir collects a rather I have dreams like you, no really, just much less touchy-feely. They mainly happen somewhere warm and sunny. On an island that I own, and I'm rested and alone. Surrounded by enormous piles of money. I've got a dream. I've got a dream. I just want to see the floating lanterns gleam. And with every passing hour, I'm so glad I left my tower. Like all you lovely folks, I've got a dream. She's got a dream. He's got a dream. They've got a dream. We've got a dream. So what difference is it really an extreme? And grotesquely optimistic Cause way down deep inside we've got a dream I've 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 got a dream Yes, way down deep inside I've got a dream She's also more conflicted than any other Disney princess, possibly more than any other Disney hero, with only, I suppose, Simba is really conflicted, because mm. what he's told to do seems impossible. Well, he kind, of, he kind of wants to do it, but it just seems impossible. And with Rapunzel... You you pointed out that Pascal was kind of like her her id. She he's the part of her that wants to get outside and wants to explore and just wants to in, not so much indulge but just do these impulses to carry them out. When she's going through that separation anxiety, when she gets out of the uh, tower and she's veering back and forth between best day ever and <laughs> I'm a horrible person. It's funny. It really is because of her delivery and the way that it's framed. But inside, she's got a really toxic internal parent that is this mm-hmm. manifestation of everything that Gothel's ever told her about herself. This internal Gothel telling her that she's bad for wanting these things. Mm-hmm. And it is heart-wrenching and hilarious at the same time. Again, this this dance the whole way through between these. I think that's why it's so fantastic, because it has me at this stretch. And part of why it's hilarious as well is because it is so identifiable. Because <laughs> when when you're 18 and, and a little bit younger than that, when you're going through your teens, your emotions do that. <laughs> they slalom like you wouldn't believe. It's terrifying. Uh, and <laughs> One making big decisions. Have all those feelings. <laughs> <laughs> when, when someone is making a big decision, 
um, or makes a big decision, it is a very quick. There's a there's a like an immediate almost regret, and it it does go back and forth, and it doesn't have to be a teenager. Although, god, teenage girls and the dramas, that's a whole other like species of people. Um, But I have so many teenage nieces. Let me tell you what. Um, But it's it's it it is that feeling of like what have I done? What have I done? Oh, dear God, am I going to regret this? Oh, my God. Ah, like, I'm so excited that I made this choice and I made this leap. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, dear God, I made a horrible mistake. <laughs> um, and I like it is so relatable. Like, it's it, I'm, I am nowhere near a teenager. And boy, howdy, do I understand what she's going through? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I've had that moment of like, yes. Oh, crap. Ah! You know, <laughs> the one thing I, that we were going on about Rapunzel's. um defenses Mm. and this is sort of a a a twist on the disney thing is that flynn is the literally the first guy that she meets that she can you know other than like her dad or whatever first guy she meets and there's that moment when she like pushes his hair back and sees his face and she's like oh and it's like that that love it you know you can't marry a man you just met um you can't you know the love at first sight the whole like disney princess oh there's a big strong man coming to save me and there's a that brief moment of like vulnerability, and then she smacks him in the head with a frying pan again, <laughs> which <laughs> is amazing. Good instinct. Hang on to also, that one, <laughs> Yeah, like. Also, why does he not have like a concussion? I want to know. Oh, she hits um, him he's so got many several. times. Yeah, jeez. I mean, his head's he's got so many. They've started to cancel each other but out. But she started to hit him an even number of times. That yeah. way, he yeah. doesn't <laughs> lose his mind. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, she's very much. She is very defensive. In in a in a in a way that Mother Gothel it kind of backfired because she made her be very scared of the world and yet she's not but she does have her defenses she does not trust anybody mm-hmm. initially um, and so you know his his appearing in her tower it wasn't like a oh my handsome prince you've come to rescue me it was like what are you doing here. What is happening? You better talk, buddy, or I'm going to use this frying pan and my lizard on you. You know, it's very... (laughs) I have a lizard and I know how to use it. Um, But, you know, it's very much a... And and hair is very strong, so I can imagine he was not able to do a whole lot when she had him tied up. Indeed not. Um, no. Like the yeah. golden lasso. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) She makes him tell the truth. Holy But this is this um, is great. It's a fantastic model for you know, when when you go out into the world as a young, vulnerable, naive person, you need those defenses. You need to be able to kind of hold people at arm's length until you know whether or not they're gonna bite your hand off. Mm. Yeah. She's and got bravery but no confidence established yet. Like she's mm. not sure of anything. Because probably Gothel has kept her so unsure of everything in her life, Absolutely. except for stay here and trust Gothel. Like, like even her very first interaction with with Flynn is bravery immediately chased by unsureness. She like whacks him on the head with a thing and then like goes yeep and hides. She's like, <laughs> terrified of what she just did. <laughs> <laughs> But to actually start to develop beyond that, to actually start to get that bravery, to accept that the outside world isn't all terrible, what's the one thing she actually needs to be given? Because remember the last time that she's like, oh my god, this is terrifying, it's at the 
the snuggly duckling. She requires big, scary, macho men to be emotionally vulnerable around her. Something about her inspires the sensitivity in others. Mm, Because she's honest, because she's open, because she doesn't know how to be any other way. And that sincerity draws it out of other people. It makes it okay for them to be authentic around her too. (laughs) Yeah, that, that kind of bothered me slightly as like a narrative uh, contrivance, the whole idea of that, like this innocence and purity and beauty will somehow change or bring out the softer side of, you know, Flynn even is a, is a thief and a, you know, not a great guy, although he's got a heart of gold, but you know, like the fact that this is, and I, I mean, they use it very well. And, and I, and I do love the, the guys in the, the snuggly duckling. They're fantastic. Like the, they're hilarious but it is almost a slightly irritating because it's like it doesn't always work like that like you're 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 pretty little innocent girls sometimes that doesn't happen like that's they're not going to suddenly change the hearts of hardened men or or women or whatever um and that that actually kind of stuck out to me as being like I'm not so sure about that. When you're taken out of the suspension of disbelief, what's that called? Uh, uh, Cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. 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 So that was, that kind of hit me in that moment of like, this is really funny and it's cute and I'm glad that they're doing all this, but also eh, like this, this meh. I would agree with you if she walked into that bar with not a clue what was going on around her. And they just dissolved into a puddle of poetic license because she was, <laughs> you know, soft and naive and, and they couldn't bear the idea of possibly hurting her. But if you look at it carefully, it is set up to look as though that's kind of the overarching effect. But what actually causes the, the spin around is she yeah. yells at them. She hits she, them with a stick. Yeah, she does. She does kind of smack them. Yeah, and she's she's jumping to the defense of Flynn at that point as well. It's mm-hmm. it's not just a case of um you know the the kind of um what's her name? Elvira that hands together and bats her eyelids and Elvira? Does Elvira do that? No, she's no. like boob? No, for more for my boobs. No, no, not that Elvira. Um, Elmira. Uh, Elmira, Tiny Toons. Yeah, okay, continue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just say Puss in Boots. All right, Puss in Boots. She's she's not doing the big kitty cat eyes and that's what gets them. She, it, uh, Like I said, it's the fact that she is being genuine. She's being true to herself at that point. And that, the, or at least the way I read that scene, that's what gets them. It's not the fact that she's this, you know, sweet little golden-haired white girl. However, yes, there is a bit of teeth on edge that that's what it looks like. But that, to yeah. me, is not what sells the turnaround. Well, she expresses her dream fiercely yeah, to them, exactly. which causes the. Well, obviously, it's an unusual uh, situation to have that many men mm. suddenly be able to come uh, unstuck and uh, come unglued, just to, to, to be able to 
give that much of themselves. But I mean, like one of them's dressed as a mime already. The other one's got the ceramic unicorns in his hands. He's ready. They're halfway yeah, they, there. They're just waiting. For they the just finish. happen to walk it's into also... a bar full of guys who are that way inclined anyway, yeah. and are actually quite looking forward to expressing themselves. They're drinking in a place called the Snuggly Duckling. For goodness yeah. sake, yeah. you know that's, they... that's a hint before you even. And they start. all know these things. They know these things about each other too. They're like, yeah. they're like Gunther does interior design. Yeah, this thing. They all know, know, like, where like, do you think the horns on the wall? came from yeah um, yeah but, but no no it's 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 not wholly 100 percent documentary accurate to the real world it is in fact try this in a tough it's part. not it's not an underused trope either it's it's fairly common oh. i think in in film for you to have this joke about here's this room full of big tough guys and a woman walks in and all of a sudden they're all tucking in their shirts and smoothing down their hair and That's curbing not, their language no they don't want to be attractive to her they want to give of themselves no not in a not in a um let's all be attractive way just in a everybody be polite there's a lady present kind of way they weren't to begin with they were like sort of like breathing down her neck this is true even after they're still like i have something that oozes they're like they're not (laughs) (laughs) there's more information than i needed (laughs) yeah (laughs) well and i the other thing is you know uh, and this goes back to the, the the love at first sight trope is always like the women are portrayed as pure and innocent and the men are sort of like not pure and innocent. They're, you know, scoundrels, the bad boys. And suddenly they become not bad boys. They're like, oh, okay, not Snow White. That prince was lame. But, you know, there's a certain (laughs) amount of like expectation that men will have had, you know, snuggling partners, shall we say. Um, And the women are closed off whether it's in a glass coffin or in a tower or you know asleep in a castle behind a bunch of vines like they're they're pure and preserved in this moment in time where the men can then come in and and oh this purity is wonderful and it's going to change me and i'm going to be this wonderful man and blah 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 and i was like nah, not really question, <laughs> question for yeah, the ladies narrative contrivance very heavily used Question for the ladies. Uh, is there mm. a... Uh, this is not me doubting what you're saying. Is there much interest among women in a pure, good man who will be kind to you and isn't massively roguish? Uh, like, are, th- are there many books about that? No. <laughs> no, I mean... It, why it do you like so- bastards so much? <laughs> Well, and that's the thing is that I don't know. Like, that's a thing that seems to be, um, and okay, this is a whole other Oprah, but just pin it. Um, you know, the society, the societal pressure is to appreciate the hypermasculine, um, roguish sort of bad boy, dangerous, you know, oh, I want him to be strong so he can protect me. Mar, mar, mar. Um, and there is that sort of, you know, romance novels do the same thing and it, it irritates the ever live in poop out of me when it's like you know i'm a pirate and i've had all these wenches That's and yet here's this this <laughs> lovely lady and now i'm going to be this perfect little gentleman and i'm going to do all the right things and blah 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 it's like nah, no unless you have a concussion which hey actually that, did, my... that tracks but i mean so I... When... <laughs> but... actually it wasn't her purity it was the concussion that caused him to change his behavior <laughs> but flynn is actually trying to play up to the hypermasculine ideal, and as it turns out, he's been doing that for quite some time. Mm, uh, like yeah. he's a lot more vulnerable underneath as well, mm. and 
and I, isn't that guy. Like, he's nowhere near the rogue he would like everyone mm, to think he but is. But I, I think that's part of what this is about. And there is a, um, quite a degree of flipping it on its head because, yes, there is that whole thing of he's got to be tough and he's got to be hyper-masculine and this is the ideal that we want our men to live up to. And uh, no, no, we don't. Also, not really in but, Disney either. I mean, like, Gaston no, 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 turned about, that on its yeah, head. Yeah, I'm not talking Even about, Prince yeah. Philip wasn't that hyper-masculine. Yeah, he was just I, a brave I know, man. and I'm not talking about Disney specifically at this point. I'm talking about the wider media representation. But the fuel for that ideal... Okay, I am speaking ridiculously generally at this point. I know not everybody looks at this in the same way, but this ideal that is set up as as you have to be this big, tough, masculine guy is not designed and shored up by women... That's that's not helpful to women at all. No. <laughs> it puts us in a dangerous position. It's yeah. that's the the uh the the culture of the the guys that says, <clears throat> here's this ideal that we want you to live up to. You have to live up to it, otherwise women won't shag you because this is what they want. Mm. And yes, there are then loads of stuff and media that's aimed at women that feeds into that and I but it's all yeah. kind of a big chain reaction thing. It doesn't I, I don't believe that it originates with this is what women want. The way they sell that to women is he is this big, tough, tough hyper-masculine guy, but you will know the true heart of him. You will know the real him. He mm. will only show you that. You can change that him. Auth- well, not even necessarily that you can change him, but just that that authentic core that's inside him, he will only share with you. And you're the person who can bring this out of him. And this is what your role is, to be the woman who will make him um, reveal the kind of man that he truly is. It's that Fifty Shades. Yes. Oh. Um, <laughs> we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Because Sharon's no, head explodes if we talk about that. Don't Google that, kids. Um, but, but this is the point. What, what this does, and, you know, with a little bit of, of suspension of disbelief involved, what this does is it says it's not the woman's job to bring these this inner core out of these men. They're bringing it out of themselves. <laughs> Flynn mm-hmm. has an inner core. And although Rapunzel provides him with a window to reveal himself, he does it himself. He tells her who he is in a moment of incredible vulnerability because they are in intense danger at a point which he thinks is going to be the end of his life. Mm. And I, one thing I adore about the scene where they're sitting at the campfire is he, mm-hmm. he does this kind of hand-wavy, oh, yeah, it's a long, sad story, and I'm not going to go into it right now, and it's, you know, very boring and very dull, and you don't want to know. And she just leans forward and puts her chin on her hands and has this expression on her face that goes, tell me everything. <laughs> yep. And I love that. And it's it's not that she's kind of encouraging him or urging him or stroking him to give up all of this information she literally just says i am here if you want to talk and he does and it's beautiful yes i will say though uh, never i i was gonna say you know the the perpetuation of like oh this bad guy has this wonderful core sometimes they don't Sometimes mm. they're just bad all the way through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. that's when women get involved into um, abusive relationships and what have you. And it's like they keep thinking that there's this this nice guy that I just have to dig deep enough to find this. No, no. Sometimes you just got to read what's on the surface and go with that. Mm-hmm. And if he's really a great guy, like, they should, it shouldn't be the re- woman's responsibility to somehow pull it out of him. Like, that's that shouldn't mm. – again, this is another Oprah, but mm. – 
I get it. Just, the, the 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 wrestling match for Rapunzel though is is working out that yeah, Gothel <laughs> uh, that that Gothel has been emotionally manipulative and abusive to her her entire yeah. life, and that Eugene has been lying to her somewhat, but that she has to be able to recognise what the, who they both are at their core, and it is really down to her to recognise mm, that. Yeah. yeah, it's her choice and. The thing that I love about the princess reveal, it's not, oh, God, I'm a princess. It's not she puts on that, um, like, it's the sun design that she finds in this city and, and, and that she realizes that was her mobile and she just thus flashes back to the crown and it's, it's revealed to her. There was actually a whole fortune teller scene with a monkey that was cut, and it's like, well, thank God, because that really didn't work in this scene. Oh, no, I want to know more about this now. A fortune teller with a monkey? Yeah, he was trying to touch her face. <laughs> but she was just about to say, she was, the fortune teller was about to reveal who Rapunzel was, and then they take her away, and I think it kind of it flagged it too much and also was kind of out of nowhere. Mm. And it also made Rapunzel not inquiring enough. But the, the mm. thing is... It's not her going, oh, Lord, I'm a princess. She's not asking, who am I? That's a moment of who am I not. When she comes out of the bedroom, she's realized she is not who Gothel's been saying this whole time. She is not uh-huh. this person that she's been positioned as her entire life. The The fact that she's a princess is incidental. She may as well just be given her old driver's license as a baby. Uh, her, you know, just... A photograph of her living in a town with another family. The princess thing doesn't matter. It's the fact that she realises Gothel has lied to her the whole time. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. yours. Yeah. And so it's a, it, it's a who am I? Well, I'm definitely not this person. Mm. And I now know that. And it kind of all makes sense now. Mm. Which then frees mm-hmm. her up to go and be who she wants to be.
This would be a good time for me to slot in with the lettuce story. Go for the lettuce story. Okay. <laughs> so yes. um, Rapunzel is one of my favourite fairy tales. It's one of the first stories I can remember my mum reading me when I was very, very little. Um, and when I say reading, I mean holding the book in front of me and me trying to grab the book off her and read it myself. Um, but that's beside <laughs> the point. Um, so the, the original story of Rapunzel is about, um, it, it's not about a king and queen, it's a farmer and his wife who are having a baby. And um, she, the wife is sick and they live next door to a witch who has a vegetable garden full of absolutely amazing, magically grown, healing food. And they're starving and they don't have just the means to keep themselves well and um, his wife gets this craving for the witch's lettuce so um, the uh, the husband climbs over the fence steals the lettuce gets caught by the witch and it, it, she's going to kill him and he says if you let me go wife having baby you can have the baby and I'll take the lettuce which seems Jesus. like a really really bad trade frankly um, so the witch says <laughs> sounds like I'm getting the best end of that deal um okay lets him take the lettuce wife has the baby baby has to be handed over to the witch parents exit stage left take very little talk about buyer's remorse um so rapunzel grows up with the witch blah 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 you know the the bulk of the rest tower and hair and etc so her, Um, her parents aren't a king and queen at all no Wow. Not in the original story. And then um, and then Prince wanders by the tower one day. God alone knows what he's doing in that part of the country. But here's Rapunzel singing at the window, thinks she's beautiful, um, convinces or, or t- watches the witch calling out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Um, so he does the same thing, climbs up the hair and meets Rapunzel. They proceed to then have a secret affair with him coming and pretending to be the witch and climbing up the hair. Um, which eventually ter- works out what's happened, which the way she does varies from interpretation to interpretation. The one I read, Rapunzel says to her, wow, you're not nearly as heavy, or no, you're way heavier than the prince. <laughs> At which point oh. the witch goes, sorry, what? Um, and the whole story comes out. See, that's, is that Grimm's fairy tales? Uh, I, I, this, this is like a little ladybird version. I don't know if this is in the original Okay, because I, I can't imagine Grimm going, oh, how am I going to give this one away? Ah, 
Grim, old boy, you still got it. Yeah. How about Rapunzel just blurts it out? <laughs> it's just, it just it, reminds me of that bit in Liar Liar where they're listening to the tape in the courtroom and he said, you have no way of knowing that that's not Mr. So-and-so on that tape. Oh, you're such a better lover than my husband. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, which is horrified, cuts off the hair and uh, I think she... Th- throws Rapunzel out to wander in the wilds or something. Um, and then um, the prince comes along, says, let down your hair. The witch throws down the hair. Prince oh. climbs up. Witch pushes, pushes him off the tower. He falls into thorn bushes, blinds himself, um, and then goes wandering the world as a beggar. At this somehow... point, Disney audiences are going, I got kids here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> somehow he and Rapunzel end up like accidentally finding each other. Like He wanders past the house she's living in now or something. She realises who he is, cries over him, tears fall into eyes, Prince suddenly magically sees again, happy ever after. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, my point about what they do with this is that they, they flip them socially. Okay. So hmm. Rapunzel in the original story comes from a poor family. Mm-hmm. And is handed off to the witch in exchange for something. Mm-hmm. And she is saved, inverted commas, has her entire life effed up, if you read it another way, um, by <laughs> Prince, who comes along and, you know, gets involved in her situation. So she um, was swapped for 10 gallons of insecticide. <laughs> yeah, right. much. And then the Prince um, came along and went, I'll have that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, good, but, grim, good grim fairy tale. Yes, nice. Indeed. But in this one, she's the one who comes from the high society, albeit that she doesn't know because she's been stolen, and um, Eugene, obviously, orphan, yeah. Poor upbringing has to prove himself as princely in nature and becomes a prince at the end by virtue of marrying a princess. Couple more things because we're going to kind of wind this one down now. Uh, Rapunzel's teeth, as have been shown in, I think that she's in the New Kingdom Hearts video game, uh, and they they made sure that the teeth were correct. She's got these cute little buck teeth, like little rabbit teeth at the front, which are imperfect. And I like that imperfection a hell of a lot. In the Wreck-It Ralph 2 trailer, which I'm not really going to talk about, uh, they are perfect flat teeth because they didn't pay that close attention to the original character model, which is a shame. Mm. Uh, but it's a, it's a nice little quirk to show that... Uh, also, the, there's um, like a, a picture meme image doing the rounds of all of the Disney princesses from recent years. And if you swap out their hair colours, they all look exactly the same. Rapunzel's facial structure is quite different to Elsa's and Anna's. They, they, I mean, they're both they're all white women. That is a problem, most definitely. And Tiana needs more films, and there needs to be more Tiana-style princesses. And Moana is a definite step forwards. But yeah. they do have. They're not all the same face shape. There is a definite like, like if you changed the character model of. Rapunzel for Anna with Rapunzel's hair, you go, well, that's Anna with Rapunzel's hair. Like, if you're paying attention, the average Joe probably wouldn't notice, but I, I, I would miss Rapunzel's teeth and that slight overbite and the... the Like, they, they act differently as well. Rapunzel's physical performance is of this, like, super eager, very kind of, like, drastically moving... She's not really a child, but, like, she's just got this, like, teenage energy bursting out of her. Mm. Anna is much more refined. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, uh, Elsa is much more refined. 
Okay, maybe refined's not the right word, but Anna has been brought up a princess. Yeah. She does behave in a princessy type way. There are some slight feral aspects to um, uh, Rapunzel when she's like crouching in the corner, hiding away from, mm-hmm. from Eugene and sort of scurrying yeah. along on her, her feet. She's got a little bit of animalistic uh, performance to her. Again, this just absolutely fantastic. I don't want to just layer superlatives on, but the attention to detail <laughs> throughout this whole film mm. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, She's a great representation of the organism itself. If anybody's interested in, like me, linking the work of Walt Disney to psychology stuff, yeah. um, Google Carl Rogers and specifically uh, organismic self and interjected values. And Rapunzel is a fantastic uh, illustration of a lot of his ideas. Maximus in the film is should be Eugene's animal companion, but he's kind of this. Uh, he, he's his conscience, but he's been dismissed. He, he's they're not partners. He's his better self. He's his better self, chasing him to try to bring him to justice and and uh, bring him down. So Maximus's role within this film is effectively to get Flynn to straighten up and fly right, and te- technically by the end he succeeds. But he's got that mm. great. Um, I think. My favourite Maximus gag is the one where he hides behind the rock with a bush attached to it and it makes it the shape of a horse. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going over a lot of this stuff quickly so that we can kind of like round this one out while we've still got energy. But to get Dan in on this one again, because mm. this one's an animation question, because mm. you'll probably have a, more of a, a head for exactly how this works than, than, than we do. The big sequences in this film, and there's a, four or five of them, and you'll know the ones that I'm talking about here. They're more spectacular than usual, uh, more so even than than Pixar films were up to this date. Why might that be? Are you able to articulate? So when you're talking like big, are you talking like big action set pieces like uh, the, the one with all the, the water, the one with yeah, the, yeah. The, the lanterns counts as an action set piece. It's just something with a lot of things moving in a large space. Yeah, I'm not sh- entirely sure. Like, I, I think uh, each 3D film kind of brings, it, like, as with the Pixar thing, its own challenges to try to tackle, whether that's getting humans looking decent for the first time or mm. getting long hair to work for the first time or dealing with huge crowds. There's always something. But I, I do agree that the, the big set pieces do look just visually spectacular in this film especially. And mm. I don't know if it's, just the rendering style they've chosen brings a little bit more fantastical flair to all of it to where it doesn't look real, but the, the off real that it is looks all the more beautiful in a way. I, I don't know, but I I agree. I kind of like what I feel like I need to look at the competition around the same time to try to pick Mm -hmm. apart exactly in depth to try to pick apart exactly what does make these look so good. But I do agree. Like the lantern sequence is just a feast for the eyes. Well, I'm looking back on two decades worth of uh, big budget blockbusters and thinking about, like, from, say, the, the train sequence in Spider-Man 2 uh, that springs to mind. That's just a big, moving action sequence with a lot of parts to it. So many of our action sequences take place in cities. Mm. To the point where when the the big sandstorm hit in The Mummy, the recent one with the female mummy, I just kind of sat back in my seat and just my eyes went dead. And I was like, yeah, okay, so run away from the sandstorm. Da, 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 da. Oh, you got away from it. How, who imagined that that would happen? And I just like, I think a lot of people are now starting to do that. They're going, right, a big 
thing in a city. Uh, there comes the glass, and here comes the whirlwindy thing. And oh, Magneto's turned up, and he's going to destroy the whole city. Not a single body there, but let's just yay! There you go, big dust cloud type thing. Oh no, there's a big <laughs> alien spaceship's come down, and, and it's making everything go up and then down again. And it's the same thing over and over again. Mm. Now a lot of like what they do in this film, like uh, lanterns get put up in the air. It's not a great big breakneck chase and the actual breakneck chase they do have is in a quarry which doesn't sound particularly gorgeous to look at but the colors are so lustrous and i think it is helped by the fact that there isn't the disconnect you get when you get a live action say um bryce dallas howard and uh, chris pratt are running away from a thing in jurassic world <laughs> four and they're in they're outside in a beautiful lush blah 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 um, environment and they escape death and we there's something that feels like well of course they escape death because that thing when it fell down they weren't anywhere near it because it doesn't exist but in the confines of the animation everything exists does that mm. make sense it does i don't think there's a hard divide though between um live action films failing to make those things seem integrated and animation succeeding, succeeding. Yeah, no. because sometimes yeah. you'll get an animation where it's like this is all oh, plenty of the time yeah and i don't need to pay attention to so it occasionally all. with pixar films i'm like right well, here's the big chase sequence okay, yeah. da, 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 and da. In, in live action if the script writers and the actors and the director have done their job <gasps> in connect and the editors of course mm. have done their job in connecting your emotional engagement with the story as it is progressing so far and the action scene which is about to happen then that disconnect doesn't happen because it's not like right that was the story now we're all going to stop for a moment so mm. that we can have some action and everybody's adrenaline can get pumped back up and then when that's all done with we'll have a little quiet moment and then we'll go back to the story again i think it comes down to they spent so long getting us into these characters so that we like them if mm. we like the characters intensely and we like looking at everything it's just win 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 mm. whereas if we kind of like okay with these characters in a blockbuster and we don't particularly like looking at everything it's lose sort of win it's why am i here continue <laughs> I would say engage with the characters intensely rather than like them because it can still happen with characters who are dislikable if they are still engaging and yeah. and you're you're invested in what's happening. To there them. are times when Mother Gothel appears to be in some sort of trouble in this and, and it is still gripping. But I think just the visual appeal and making everything look so lustrous mm. really helps the action because you're it, drinking it in. It helps also that... Uh, especially with the quarry sequence that it, it's a really well done sequence. And they, I think part of why it works is that they do a very good job of maintaining your sense of the geography of the space. And mm -hmm. so you can track the cause and effect of the action scenes that of, of the whole action scene as it goes, like the two, like oh, what are the, what are the names of the two twins that, Red like Stabbingtons or something? The Stabbingtons, yeah. yeah. The Ron Stabbingtons. Ron Perlman and, and, and the silent other guy. Ron Perlman. <laughs> yeah, are, are like, they're, down at, they're down at ground level. Flynn is up on a little perch sword fighting a horse, which is already <laughs> funny. So like, it, so you're laughing throughout this whole sequence as well. You're, you may not be really fearing for their lives, but it's funny and amusing and it's exciting. Rapunzel Much like already the swung Tarzan, across. Uh, action sequences. Yeah, yeah, actually. 
Yeah. Like Rapunzel already swung across. Like she throws her hair to Flynn. He's swinging down, but now like, oh no, the Stabbingtons are going to get him when he swings down low. She's got to pull the hair up. It, like you can track the geography and where everyone yeah. is, and it's and it's just effortlessly leading to a lot of very good gags that aren't interrupting with or interfering with the action. They are part of it, and they're making the whole sequence just fun. Mm. Mm. So it maybe um, it's about lack of cognitive dissonance that your brain can just go, this is a thing that's happening, and go with it, rather than having to be yeah. sort of like, well, that's not real, and that couldn't possibly have happened immediately after that thing, and so that's not real. Yeah. And it's not thinking these things consciously, it's just switching off and going, I don't need to pay attention There to has this. to be something in this, because big CG epic action adventure films with cuter, more stylized characters to get that likability and the engagement have been the biggest business apart from Marvel in the past 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, just my own observation, first of all, like high, high praise to the animators, Mm. especially in the quarry scene, because that was flipping fantastic. But the, the thing that the scene you mentioned about the lanterns being lifted up and then the scene with the quarry, the thing that just, kind of occurred to me is that with the lanterns you have two basic elements you have fire and you have air and with the quarry scene you have earth and you have water when they break open the whatever it is the dam or what have you and suddenly it's like <laughs> like the scene in lord of the rings um but it's it's primitive and it's not there's it it's the environment it's not like big robots or yeah. or a bunch of Stupid animals. Or skyscrapers. Madagascar can just go burn. Yes. Um, But, (laughs) and all of the sequels. Um, But it's it's a lot more of the environment itself and the the tangible objects rather than, I mean, yes, the people in the in the quarry are reacting, but they're reacting to the environment they're in. They're they're kind of acting with the environment and using it to their advantage that's why it made me think of uncharted because uncharted when it's at its best uh one two four parts of three uh (laughs) all of them are great um but when as at its best almost always is out in the wilderness in some place that's really picturesque when it's at its worst it's usually in some dingy um like indoor place and you're kind of waiting to get back outdoors again but Mm -hmm. the, the the sense of being able to uh, traverse that environment is really compelling and, and uh, that's those are the two things that the uncharted series and and possibly just zelda just the idea of maybe even just more breath of the wild like since since that's come out the idea of like, getting up on top of a hill and looking out over it and although that does have more of a, a ghibli feel to it it's mm. got that sort of sweep and grandeur in there <laughs> My next question is about the confluence of events at the end with Rapunzel, Eugene and Gothel at the close when Rapunzel says to Gothel after discovering who she's not, I will never stop trying to get away from you. That's one of my favorite delivered lines in any Disney film Mm -hmm. because that is a princess standing up and asserting herself and refusing to be exploited and subjugated anymore. 
and mm-hmm. realizing that it is right for her to say this. And it wasn't until the time I saw it today that I thought, does she have, I really want to be proven wrong on this one. Does she have part of that agency taken away by the fact that Flynn cuts her hair for her that to sacrifice to himself? Too. And again, today was the first time it had really Bollocks. occurred to me. I want to be told, no, it's a dual effort. <laughs> okay, discuss. I don't think it would ever have occurred to her to cut her hair um, in order to get away. I think that's the hair is her means in and out of the tower, first of all. Um, And it's also been a part of her identity for so long that I don't think she would have, if she thought of it, I think she would have done it. But I I don't think it would ever have occurred to her to think of it. Mm. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that diminishes her agency in any way. I think that it's just, it's always been a part of her. And so she can't, it, it just wouldn't have entered her realm of consciousness as a thing. I mean, she she talks about it with Eugene at the fireside, which is such a great scene. But she, you know, she mentions it as like, oh, you know, if somebody cuts it, then then it loses its power. And I think that you know she wants to have the power in in the fact of wanting to help people, and and the fact that this is part of her identity and part of who she is. Um, and I think that she wanted to get away from Mother Gothel without sacrificing what she believed was her identity, which isn't her identity. I mean, her hair, as with Mother Gothel and her behavior, it isn't. It isn't Rapunzel. It is. It is Rapunzel. Just sort of carries it. Bars. It is its own thing. So it is not. You know, she obviously. You know, they cut her hair, and then she's then she's a brunette like her parents. But she's special and, for all the reasons she's made herself special. Right, exactly. So, and I think it was, I think the fact that Flynn did cut her hair, I think, is more about his journey um, and less about her journey. Because I, she, in that moment, was completely and totally, I'm not going to stop fighting you, and you can't have my hair, and I'm going to keep my hair, and you can't have it, ner, ner, ner. Um, Flynn cutting her hair was sacrificing himself. Because he knew what the power that, knew the power that the hair had, and that it could heal him, and he wasn't willing oh, to. I'm, yeah, no, I'm definitely aware of that. It was. Um, yeah. My worry was that is that sacrificing her agency for his arc? I see what you mean there, like because mm-hmm. she makes the choice. Your life means more to me than my freedom. He makes the choice. Your freedom means more to me than my life. He makes a move that Clint, that like that makes the choice for both of them. It doesn't guarantee her freedom, and this bothered me, because I was like, yeah, but Gothel could just have gone and stabbed Rapunzel. He had no way of protecting her there. All yeah. he could do is take away Gothel's only reason to take keep Rapunzel alive. Mm-hmm. It's a dicey move. And I'm not, I don't want to be like those freaking YouTube videos that criticize one element of a Disney <laughs> film and go, did you know Belle has Stockholm Syndrome? No, Rapunzel but has Stockholm Syndrome. Here's the thing. Belle just it? likes furry things. Yeah. <laughs> She's a secret furry. Don't kink shame Belle. Not gonna. Um, no, it, I embrace <laughs> that fur. It's, there, is, there is a difference between seizing on one thing and then beating it to death because you want to bring... Um, dislike and, and disharmony to the, the the piece of art and acknowledging that there's something that might a be a flaw. Yeah, yeah. You, you can you can be aware of it without going, and this is massive and it wrecks the whole thing. Because also not necessarily a critical flaw 
at the time, but it's、yeah. been quite a while since 2010,、yeah. and, and there is a lot of talk about like getting as much agency as possible to the women. And I am. One thousand percent behind. Yeah,、it. I mean, when when I said yes, it did occur to me on this watching that he does kind of take the decision out of her hands, and is that the sort of obviously it's not as bad because it's not for the same reasons, but is he doing the same thing that Goffel has always done? But、mm. the bottom line is Rapunzel has already. Made her decision. She's already、yeah. said, "I will never stop fighting you." She is not.、Um, she doesn't remain passive. She doesn't go limp and let Gothel take her. And then Eugene runs over and cuts her hair off.、Mm. It's not as if he's saving her at that point. I think、um, the the fact that he's doing it to sacrifice himself because, as you say, Dan, his life is not worth as much to him as her freedom. The hair. Is not Rapunzel's. The hair is Gothel's,、yeah. but the power is Rapunzel's. Because when the hair is gone, the power is not gone. It's still there. It's still within her. But Gothel was integrally linked to the hair because it was cutting it off that made her start to deteriorate very quickly. Yeah. Enough <laughs>、mm. already. Stop fighting me. I won't stop for every minute of the rest of my life. I will fight. I will never stop trying to get away from you. But if you let me save him, I will go with you. No, no, Rapunzel. I'll never run. I'll never try to escape. Just let me heal him, and you and I will be together. Forever, just like you want. Everything will be the way it was. I promise. Just like you want. Just let me heal him. In case you get any ideas about following us. I promise you have to trust me. No, come on, just breathe. I can't let you do this, and I can't let you die. But if you do this, then you will die. Hey, it's gonna be all right. And I also think, you know, Rapunzel's had her the hair. Obviously, her whole life, and she's been using it as a tool. She's been using it as, you know, she obviously uses it to get up and around, and、um, it's part of her mobility within the tower. So it allows her freedom within the tower、mm. to get up high and open things and close things, and my, the whole thing about like the specialness and and that makes her special. Flynn doesn't, or Eugene doesn't see the hair as as anything that makes her special. Um, he sees her as being the special. <laughs> he sees her as being special,、mm-hmm. and doesn't care about the hair. And I think that is—it's freeing for both of them. Like you said, she'd already made her choice. She'd already said, you know, this is—I'm out of here. Peace out. You know, hasta la pasta. I'm out of here. But he—he he basically gives her the ability to be more free.
than she realized she could be. Yeah, which he's already done a little bit earlier on. He's the one who comes up with the idea of getting the brownies to plait her hair, mm. which gives her much more freedom to move around in that social environment than she would be with this mile of hair behind her. Yeah. Which How much did like that hair weigh? <laughs> yeah. Lots. That is like, the heaviest How does her neck not snap? In the I'm world. just... Also, she'd have really well-developed, like, biceps and, and, and her, her pectoral muscles. muscles. Would be just carrying it around all the time. She'd look like an MMA fighter. Absolutely. And- <laughs> Flower, clean and glow. Let your power shine. Make the clock reverse. Bring back what once was mine. You what has been hurt change the fate's design save what has been lost bring back what once was mine what once was The Flower Gleam and Glow song, I love that so much. And every iteration of it is slightly different. She sings it slightly differently when she's a child. She sings it slightly differently with um, Flynn the first time by the river. And there's a there's such and a with Mother Flower Gleam and Glow, let your flower shine. Exactly, but there's there's a gorgeous melancholy to the way she sings it to to Flynn that first time because this is the first time she's done this <sighs> completely of her own choice, completely of her own volition, and the the power that's in that way she sings the song in that scene is so moving. And then it's a different version again at the end when she thinks she's lost him and then realises that that it's the outpouring of grief that brings him back. Um, and I, I just love the way that song flows through all of those little moments and almost mm-hmm. how she's singing Flower, Gleam and Glow tells you how Rapunzel is evolving through the, the course of the film. No, 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 Eugene. <coughs> no. Look at me, look at me, I'm right here. Don't go stay with me, Eugene. Flower, Gleam and Glow, Rapunzel. let you... Power shine. Hey. Make the clock reverse. Bring back what once was mine. Rapunzel. What? You are my new dream. <laughs> and you are mine.
Massive props, by the way, to Mandy Moore as Rapunzel. Yeah. yeah. For both voice and singing. Uh, Zachary Levy as well. Uh, also voice and singing, surprisingly. Never realised yeah. it was him doing the song. Yeah. But, um, really didn't. No, that they, they've got such dramatic weight to both of them mm. and mm. It, it, they're such a lovable couple I love these guys yeah. um, mm-hmm. did anybody else notice by the way in At Last I See the Light the mm. echo of a whole new world yeah. that's in there yeah. which is another story mm. about a princess who runs off with a thief mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I a thought, good idea I yeah. thought she wrote a book about that I thought that was quite sweet um, a, a little visual <laughs> moment that I thought was, was absolutely wonderful when the lanterns light up um, when the, the king and queen light theirs first and then all the people follow suit. Just the faces of the king and queen before that moment. Oh, Heartbreaking. God. Just Absolutely. such fantastic visual storytelling to make you... Like, you don't know these guys. And, like, suddenly just that little moment is enough. Mm. Continue, so. Yeah. Um, it's just the path of the, the light as you get the crowd first and then there's the people in the, the path as it winds down the hill away from the castle. That's her hair. Mm. Oh, yeah. And also the flowers at the end mm. is the same sort it's of... the same flowers that it, she had studying the plat. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's when, when, when the healing happens and Flynn, the whole magical glowing... Woo! Um, that kind of organically spirals out mm. like her hair as well. Yeah. And I think that's the last, like, that is symbolizing of her hair's last time it's ever going to work. <laughs> the last remaining drop? Kind of, yeah. Like, it's like, this is this is the end. This is, I'm going out with a bang um, kind of thing. It does give that impression, actually, doesn't it? I'd, I'd, I'd not thought of it that way. I'd always assumed that, that that's it, that healing power is in her now. No, 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 no. No. That's it, that's gone. Uh, well, it starts with a single drop from mm. the from the, the sun, and that would appear to be just it reaching yeah, its final conclusion. Drop. Although, uh, let's, I'm sure we're going to get inundated with emails going, you've got to watch the entirety of Tangled, the series. It's great. <laughs> I, I'm sure it is. Um, They give her her long hair back, don't they? Yes. So better have a damn good reason because it's character development that then winds backwards. That's what they do with all those cartoons from the 80s where they were like, let's pretend the third act of that movie never happened. They all seem to take place in between the middle of the film and before the final sequence kicks in. And they reach different conclusions to the ones the films do. Beetlejuice is your buddy now. He lives with you. Absolutely. Slimer? No, he's your friend. You're not going to stick him in that trap at all, are you? Absolutely, yeah. Slimer talks. Yeah. Okay, continue. Sorry. And eats. And is called Slimer. Um, No, just the the last two tiny points I wanted to make. Um, When we go back to the tower after Gothel's gone back with Rapunzel, she's young again. We don't see it happen, but that means she's convinced Rapunzel to sing for her at least one more time. Mm. And that, Mm -hmm. I think, actually feeds into her then saying, I will keep fighting you, but if you let me save him, I'll come with you. At that point, she she is growing up in such a way that she is now recognising her compliance, realising that it is a power of a sort and using it. And that's Mm. not a weapon that Gothel taught her to use. Mm. So that is quite a a powerful point in and of itself. She does use a little bit of uh, manipulation, like when she talks to Eugene. There's a point when she's like, well, it is my birthday, when uh, the... the, um, (laughs) 
uh, the the pub, and it's just it's like a, a little kind of it's like light side Jedi use of these dark side tactics that mm. uh, Gothel's been using. Like just a little bit of uh, you don't need to see his identification. <laughs> but considering who she had to learn from, yeah. It's, it's hard. It, you can hardly blame her. It's amazing she's the lovely person she is. Absolutely. I was just, uh, side note, why didn't Gothel change her birthday? Why didn't Gothel call her Briar Rose? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that was kind of a, you kind of missed a step there. Yeah. Mother Gothel. That's, that's one of those things. <laughs> yeah. like, why did she dress her in purple? Honestly, I feel like it's like, why, why if, oh, well done your birthday. I'd, oh, those lanterns, they're celebrating your birthday. And then she kind of got stuck with it, so she couldn't change it. <laughs> <laughs> that was she just tried a, to dro- change a mid-sentence, but couldn't think of another word. Yes. <laughs> they're celebrating your birthday. Day. Oh, wow, that is shit. hot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but my my final point is um, just a, a little tiny thing, and this may not even have been deliberate. Um, but when Gothel goes off to get the shells for Rapunzel's paint, she says she's going to be gone for three days. And she isn't. Which no, but three days is a mythological rebirth period. Mm. The three days Jesus comes back, three days reincarnating God's... If somebody is going to rebirth themselves, three days is a cracking period of time in which to do it. It is. Interesting. Well, I also... Frankly, again, I've mentioned Maximus is my one of my favourites in this entire movie. He's The way that he's animated and the, the way that they pers- um, anthropomorphize. Hmm? Yeah. Yes. It also is a Latin for greatest or largest... And a lot of, like, emperors and things like that have had that name. Um, And then Pascal is actually a French uh, mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and theologian, Hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Like, I think that the, you know, Flounder as a, you know, like Sebastian, but these are names that have, like, weight behind them. Hmm. There's, yes, I know it was based on the the animators or whatever's um, lizard, um, but obviously the the name meant something to her, you know, been put into this, this movie. So I, I just think that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I've watched a couple of different movies and I'll send you links about it regarding um, like tangled theories and whatnot. There's a, there's some talk about the lantern that floats down to the boat when they're in it is actually the one that the King and Queen lit. Oh. And I'm thinking it only it's probably the only one that has the flo- the royal flower on it. But it's I, I don't know I I'm not gonna say you know confirm that or deny because I was really looking like in the things. But it looks like it is the same one that they initially light and send up. If that's the only one with the with the sun on it, then it's the one that floats down by them and calls her home. Okay, so any final thoughts on Tangled? I have two. First, yeah. Witch's Lettuce really sounds like drug lingo. <laughs> <laughs> or something dirty. That was some good Witch's Lettuce we had last night. <laughs> and second, just wanting to pour one out for the uh, team on 
producing this. Like any film that has been in production that long, yeah. probably the last final version that we see of it was like had to rush to get out the door. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, I, I know I know one person or I worked with one person who worked on this and he was legit about to quit the industry after this. Like he was oh. almost done, which which would have been a tragedy because he's one of the best animators I've ever seen. But Disney animation that this is, I think, just kind of a continuing trend from here. But it, the 3D animation scene can be pretty brutal and hard productions like this and Frozen and a couple others are like oh. rough on people. Like, And I love that they get the happy ending of all of that effort coming out for a great movie, mm. but like still just uh, kudos to them for working so hard. And I hope that they have been much, have had much happier, less stressful work since. I was just going to say, I hope they took a really long vacation. <laughs> I hope <laughs> After so. After it wrapped. <laughs> this is what makes me feel so sad about films like um, Treasure Planet that are such technical marvels and they're such achievements and mm. it's such a thankless task because it's like, nah, this this movie lost money. It wasn't massively well critically received, and everyone liked the the animal picture instead. Yeah. So. Nah. And now for a very special, very important announcement. Hello, School of Movie students. This is Sharon Shaw. All of us, without exception, have two things in common. Number one. We all have something in our lives that we're not happy with, something that's bothered us repeatedly over the years and sometimes feels impossible to get past. It could be difficulty forming relationships. It could be a sense of feeling trapped in your job. It could be issues with your parents that just never seem to go away. And number two, all of us like to watch movies. Movies can help us process what's going on in our lives. Sometimes you'll watch one that just feels profound to you specifically. And we already know you're the kind of person who wants to dig deeper into that. Otherwise you wouldn't be listening to our show. But what if you could have some personal guidance in unlocking and examining why that movie means so much to you? It could be your all-time favourite or one you've just seen. It could be one you saw when you were tiny and it just stuck with you. I've been co-hosting this podcast for three years now guesting for many more before that, and I've seen firsthand how our relationships to certain films can help us grow and work out who we are and who we want to be. What I'm now offering is the opportunity to explore what's affecting you through the lens of a personalised, focused movie therapy session. By now you're familiar with our commission shows, where listeners can ask us to cover movies that Alex and I wouldn't necessarily choose to delve into. And this is your chance to have a private, customised version, a way to self-analyse using a film of your choice as a focus point. This might sound complicated, but here's how we're going to do it. You bring a movie that has strong significance to you personally, and I'll bring my experience of film analysis and my qualifications in person-centred counselling, English, drama and media. And it's going to be really easy to start this off. You get in contact with me at Sharon at movietherapyonmicrosoft.com. That email is in the notes. And we can discuss what film you have in mind and what aspect of your personal life you'd like to address. If that sounds good, I'll go away and watch your movie. And then we'll be all set to talk about why it's important to you and how you could apply what you find in the film to your life, relationships and personal development. 
Just as with commissioned shows, my time and insight are what you're buying here. These one-off, hour-long sessions will run at $60 for the general public, but for this trial period, I'm offering our patrons a reduced rate of $45. Now, this is not going to fix your entire life. It would be ridiculous of me to suggest that. But what it can do is give you perspective on what's holding you back in a relatable way. Focus your intentions and give you a clearer view on the steps you can take to change things for the better. So that email address again is Sharon at movietherapy.onmicrosoft.com. Write to me with the movie you choose for your focus point. And we'll go from there. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier gets sponsor credit every episode, so a huge, major Rapunzel's hair-length thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. If you were stabbed by a witch, we would shower you with golden tears. Wait, what? Also, if you're not on the $5 level at Patreon, then you are not listening to our 45-minute Venom quick review. I ended up with quite a lot to say about this one. So that is Tangled, which remains one of my absolute favourites. I was not worried, but I figured it's not going to be as wonderful when I see it again. But this is the first time I'd seen it with high dynamic range on the Xbox One S. And that boosts the colours up to make everything look like it's playing on a 4K disc. (sighs) It's amazing. It is worth buying a 4K TV and an Xbox One S. I know it sounds like a ridiculous investment. Just don't eat. Don't go on holiday. If you love movies, that is the future for you, folks. Do that. And the the way the colors change, the way everything goes from being sort of, oh, that's okay, to being, it's finally alive. It makes Tangled go from looking amazing to looking, what's ten times better than amazing? Decker amazing. Yeah, Decker amazing. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Almost, some might say perfect, but they'd be wrong to do so. Okay. Right, so so that is Tangled, uh, and we will be back next week with... uh, We'll start with Winnie the Pooh, 2011, and then we'll move on to Wreck-It Ralph. So, uh, thank you very, very much to our guests, Dan Floyd. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. And Maureen Foley. Thank you so much. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Much easier, that's not so much easier to sync than neural handshake completely. <laughs> <laughs> that's You're why we wrong. changed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, um, though, Maureen? Thank you so, so much for coming on. You were, you were. brilliant. I, yeah. Just, this was a really, really great chat, and you were such a big part of that. Thank you so, yeah. so much. Thank you. You're welcome. I feel like we did a little bit less about animation and a little bit more about psychology. Well, no, that's, 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 that's how we roll. <laughs> This, how, this is not unusual for us. It's, uh, <laughs> it's 60-40 on these Disney um, shows. Yeah, but that's why it's like I'm with Snow White, you... no psychology at all. So mm, it's yeah. nice animation. <gasps> Don't eat the f***ing apple! <laughs> <laughs> not a direct um, one, yeah. Anyway. Cool. So, Thank anyway. you very, very it was, much. It was so fun talking to you, Dan. <laughs> it was nice talking to you, Hello. too. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll let you guys go. Have fun on Winnie the Pooh. Okay. okay. Have a nice evening. Right, have a, yeah. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.